It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Welcome Maui. to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I'm Mark. And I'm Ben, and this is the first of the appendices. Yeah, yeah. Should I maybe change the opening of the podcast? Welcome to... Like, higgledy-piggledy whale statements, colon, appendices? Welcome to higgledy-piggledy whale statements. Gaiden! <laughs> Jeez. I, I think we can just say, you know, higgledy-piggledy whale statements. But yeah, we are now done with Moby Dick and moving on to various other Moby Dicks, yeah. more or less. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're gonna, I think we, we've said before on the podcast, but our, our intention is to cover a bunch of Moby Dick adaptations, of which you won't be surprised to learn there are... Many. <laughs> oh yeah, public domain, great American novel, weird, fascinating whale. It's it's got it all. Everything that you need for a great adaptation. Yeah, and, and for many mediocre ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I there's a Wikipedia list of adaptations of Moby Dick, and we I, are not just working our way down. No, we though. are not. We are not intending to do every single adaptation of Moby Dick because there's a lot of them that I just think probably aren't that interesting, right? Yeah. Um. I was hoping that the Moby Dick adaptations Wikipedia page would have some easy way for me to count how many there are, but uh, it doesn't have anything like that, so I'm not going to count them on the air. Yeah, I would not try, because here's the thing. There's going to be a bunch of random adaptations, like reworkings, comics, and so on, because, again, it's it's very in the public domain, and it has a certain cultural cachet, so I suspect there's a lot of somewhat questionable adaptations, as well as some really cool ones. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about today is, uh, I think, probably, like, the most kind of famous Moby Dick adaptation. Yeah, I, it's definitely the one I was aware of uh, ahead of time, more so than the others. Yeah, which is the 1956 film, simply titled Moby Dick. Yep, it is a color film adaptation uh, directed by John Huston, with a screenplay by Huston and Ray Bradbury, the science fiction author. Uh, starred... Science fiction author and Ben's personal enemy. We could get to that eventually. We <laughs> don't have to preemptively tell them that I'm going to be subtly poisoning them against Ray Bradbury for very good reasons the entire show. So, you know, thanks a lot, Mark. I, I just like that Ray... I agree with you that Ray Bradbury is a villain, and I like to spread <laughs> that gospel... Far and wide and and straightforwardly, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll discuss his particular artistic crimes in this movie and also his more general deal yeah. uh, later on. But uh, starring uh, Gregory Peck, uh, who I've heard of, and then uh, Richard Basehart and Leo Glenn, who I haven't. Yeah, uh, Basehart was uh, Ishmael, and I think Gen was... Yeah, Gen, Gen was... Um, oh, did I say Glenn? Gen, yeah. Yeah, Leo Gen... Was Starbuck? Um, Starbuck, yep. Yeah, no. And Gregory Peck, of course, stars as Ahab. I, hmm. I, the I, film, it is generally understood that yeah, this is yeah, a no, Gregory Peck film. And he was yeah. like the name. Like, yeah, Gregory was, Peck was like a famous guy. Yeah, he's he's ab- it's absolutely a, a Gregory Peck vehicle in a certain sense. Um, although uh, he was 
not originally Huston's choice for the role. Uh, yes. Is something that it's, again, all of my information here comes from Wikipedia, but the studio made him cast Peck as Ahab in order to have a, um, a recognizable name on it. And so I think it'll be interesting to discuss how we feel that casting worked out when we get into it, but uh, I don't know, where do we start? Well, maybe we should start with talking about, like, what happens in the film. Um, yeah, and because what, it does change the book quite a bit. Yeah, we don't have a... I haven't written out a summary for this the way that I normally do for the Moby Dick chapters. And in general, going forward with the appendices, I mean, I'm going to feel it out with the summaries. Because, first of all, some of them, like this one, hew closely enough to the actual plot of the novel that I, I don't think going through each event is, like, necessary. Yeah, no, most of the events of this are events from the novel, but... Well, I'll use an example that I think is, I think, sort of a synecdoche for the whole movie. Uh, sure. And a, a, an exemplary moment that you can see the whole structure, which is Ishmael, at the very end, has his, like, epilogue speech. But it's combined with elements from the uh, sort of fully omniscient third-person narration from the end of uh, The Chase Third Day. So he talks about how the sea rolls on, as it did 5,000 years before, over the Pequod. Ahab and Moby Dick and then he goes on to talk about being picked up and he combines and in fact I think he says the sea rolls on after he says he floated on that dirge-like mane so there's this way in which it's reassembled the order and added in some terms like specifying that the sea rolls on over Moby Dick which is a really thematically weird thing given the the way the shroud of Noah the sea rolling on functions in the original novel and it produces a has different thematic effect. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to note how, like, how small a change that is in a certain sense, because yeah. it is, as you say, for the most part, this is taking words that are actually in the novel, and words that, I mean, you said that some of them are from a more sense of, like, an omniscient narrator, which is fair, Yeah, but it's not really fair, that big of a vision. It's still all Ishmael voice. Yeah, exactly. Everything in the narration is still something Ishmael is saying, and it's parts of the book that are, like, quite close to each other, Right. It's yeah. basically just transposing some words over into, from the last chapter into the epilogue, um, and, like, adding one phrase. And yeah. that, that change, which I, I think, I hope you and I can agree, is, as far as uh, novel adaptations to film, oh, yes. that's a pretty small change. Quite small, yeah. But I do think you're right, that it, it, it does something thematically. I think what we're going to see in these adaptations is that Moby Dick's structure as a novel mm -hmm. does a lot, and that means that any adaptation is going to be automatically changing a lot, even if it's fairly faithful, as yeah. I think I would say this is a fairly faithful film adaptation. It is certainly... This is a film adaptation that is clearly by someone who really wanted to adapt Moby Dick, because there's a number of elements of it. There's, like, lifted speeches taken directly from the book, but their location and time are changed in a way that makes it more movie-shaped, more yeah. cinematic, but also, in various ways, creates a very idiosyncratic or specific take on the book. And I don't mean that in a negative. Obviously, any adaptation of Moby Dick is going to be very specific and idiosyncratic to the people adapting it. But I do think that there's a few changes that are very particular that I think, you know, change the book in major ways. I think the, the funniest example of this uh -huh. is the bit where now Moby Dick is finally faced in, uh, in the chase just off Bikini Atoll. Yes, this is the thing when, when uh, there, there's uh, the chart, you know, the scene where Ahab is like charting where Moby Dick will be. 
Um, okay, first of all, they change how the, the, the script changes how the chart functions. Well, I would say that what it really does is provides a more detailed and I suppose scientific understanding of what exactly Ahab is doing with the chart. Um, sort of, because in the in the original charting, it talks the chart. It talks about the idea that there are these veins that that whales are sighted in, and you can learn those. And we know that whales will be coming to this place and that at particular times, and we know how fast they go. And so the way the chart works is less by the the statistical op- operation that is presented in this movie, and more by the sort of way that you can predict the motion of armadas or fleets, which is they have to go to this place, they're going via these routes, and they tend to be within a small range of these locations, so you can chart out where they will maybe be on each day to get the best chance. Whereas the I statistical mean that... one is much more... I, I, okay, sorry. It's a very different model of, of mathematical knowledge. I guess I just still don't fully agree because what I understood the movie to be doing was like when we hear the information that Ahab knows where whales typically are at what times of year, what I understood the film to be doing was telling us that the way he knows that is through detailed statistical analysis of historical records of well, where yeah, whales he, are sighted. He explicitly cited. says that he's looking at historical records of where whales are sighted, but Look at the, if you look at the chart, he's divided it into little sectors in a grid, and he talks about it as a grid, and he talks about how you'll see whales at this time of year, you know, will basically, rather than a, sorry, this is getting weirdly theoretical, rather yeah, I, than... I, I, I genuinely don't under, actually understand the distinction you're so, talking about. One of these is a principle-based approach. You start with the idea that whales move at a certain speed and go to certain places at different times of year on the whole. And then you look at the site, the empirical evidence of locations that you've seen them. And, you know, the, the speed is also empirical. These, these times of year... Th- that's what I'm saying, but, though. Like, how do you... Uh, uh... So you project from knowledge of whale motion and specific the need to get to certain places how they must be moving and how you can get these particular veins and then you test that by presumably going out and trying to catch whales in those veins whereas the way ahab presents it in the movie is that there is a grid you don't have any qualities of whales that apply to this grid. he talks about is just here are all the whale sightings and i've gone through this whole archive of books and you know they've mentioned where they caught whales when so i've put a dot on this paper for every whale sighting and now you see that it forms these lines you it forms these shapes and now i can determine with you know with unerring accuracy where this thing will be and he's much more specific in the movie than he is in the novel and so this is a real change because it's not the way you try to chart the motion of an adversary on the ocean like in a submarine chase it's this is now purely statistics it's purely empirical it's purely like again there's a grid not a series of of um tracks yeah so i guess the way that it came across to me and i think the reason that i was a little confused in your description is that for me when i was reading the chart the chapter that talks about what ahab is doing to track the whales Mm -hmm. it felt very mysterious to me like uh, you're totally yes it it is mysterious uh, so you're totally right that there is in that chapter some indication of what ish what ahab is doing um beyond just like he looks at the chart and magically gets the knowledge like you're totally right that thing you said about veins that's in there but i didn't associate that with a specific existing navigational strategy although from your description like i believe you that that's just that, that makes sense. 
that this is a way that, you know, say naval ships. Yeah. And would... so I should say, um, I've realized something. It's that they also transposed a specific other organization's charting methods to Ahab. Because there is a footnote about a chart that divides the ocean into districts of five by five. Okay, but that in the footnote, someone else is describing that doing that? That happens, like, in the last couple years before the book is published, mm-hmm. and Ahab would have been oh, decades yes, ago. Oh, yes, that's the... Now I remember. That's like, Ishmael's trying to be like, look, if you think that whales can't be tracked to that degree, here's an even more modern scientific yes, approach. Yes, exactly. Yes. And so, so they've projected that modern scientific approach directly onto Ahab. So, yeah, the thing... Understandably. So, yeah, that's the thing. What I felt was happening in the chapter of the chart is that we're shown Ahab doing something that is like, yeah, technically speaking, other whale or other whale captains, or at least other captains of other ships, might do something kind of like this. Mm-hmm. But whatever Ahab is doing, he is achieving something that is that that is actually kind of impossible for other people. Yes, one hundred percent. He is per- perceiving or or creating some kind of knowledge that is beyond the, like, knowledge creation tools of other captains. And what I felt the film was doing by that was saying, yes, Ahab is doing modern 20th century statistical analysis with 19th century data. And that's why he's, like, it was presenting Mm. Ahab as a a man of science ahead of his time. Which is, like, to me, what that's doing is resolving a question that's in the chart of like Mm. how can ahab do this and is what he's doing really accurate or uh, like okay obviously ahab does eventually meet moby dick but i think in the novel you could ask yourself well is that because ahab truly understood where moby dick is or is that because of some other fatal force because like so close to the end they have all these weird navigational difficulties so like can you really say that it's because ahab knew where he was going so well or was it because of other forces yeah but and and i I do think it's worth noting that each time there's a navigational difficulty ahab overmans and masters it the lord of the level log and line so i just want to say that again Uh, true um which i think is how the novel maintains that ambiguity yes however in the film it's very unambiguous ahab correctly evaluated the evidence and found out where Moby Dick would be. Like, specifically Moby Dick, in a way that none of these uh, predictive methods claim is actually possible for a specific whale. And he found, not only that he found where Moby Dick would be, but that it's a specific named point in the ocean that the viewers would be familiar with. (laughs) Yes, and... We, wow, this took a long while to get to. Uh, specifically, it's the location of the Castle Bravo nuclear fusion test, fusion weapon tests of 1954. Uh, the fusion bomb was first tested on Bikini Atoll, which is also implicitly near where SpongeBob lives, because he lives in Bikini Bottom. So that explains a lot. But, uh, <laughs> okay. sorry, I just love that stupid little pop cultural detail. But no, so Bikini Atoll has a certain fascination in pop culture. Um, and I think that we can probably say that Ray Bradbury is the one who was like, you know what, let's imply that Moby Dick has some sort of connection to fusion bombs, or maybe is Godzilla. Yeah, like, obviously the film cannot possibly be implying that Moby Dick was created as a monster by, like, radiation. Transtemporal fusion bomb whale. But it does, I think, you're right, evoke the idea from, you know, like kaiju films of the 50s of a 
a monster created by nuclear the bug testing. The monster, the atomic era of, like, B-movies. I think that's well in, in uh, motion by the time this comes out. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I, it's going to be very interesting, I think, to compare this film to The Whale God, which is, is, a, kaiju film. is a kaiju film. Yes, I'm um, excited for it. And I think is is relatively contemporaneous with this. I'm trying I to remember no when idea. the Whale God came out. Um, I think the Whale God is is a 50s or 60s film. Okay. Um, okay. So I do want to move on to other differences from yes, the book because yes. there's, there's a number of them and they're interesting. But here's where I think sort of going through. We've talked about sort of the effects of this reordering and some and a specific one that stood out to both that or stood out to me with the chart and the bikini atoll stood out to both of us and different ways of you know, changing things that may have more or less effect depending on how the viewer takes it. But I do think that it's worth mentioning that there's a number of just straightforwardly more cinematic changes. For example, uh, Ishmael meets Stubb in the Spouter Inn in the early pages, and he sees Ahab walk past in the street. Yeah, there's a lot of things in the film where, like, I would say that um, things are kind of streamlined yeah, or, or yeah. set up more clearly than they are in the novel. It's a shorter film than it is a novel, and it's it closes the circle a lot. There aren't as many ancillary characters. There's no Bulkington. Rip Bulkington. Yeah, there's no Bulkington. Um, there's uh, there's no Fadala. Oh, yeah, no Fadala No Fadala, no secret crew. Those are just gone. Yeah, apparently people just expected Ahab to go out on the boats. Uh, yeah, and there's also no... Um, Castaway. Pip is present. Pip is like about as major a character in the film as he is in the movie, maybe yeah, a little less. Yeah. But Pip has film no. Film the book, you mean? The, that's what I meant. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, Pip never uh, sees the foot of God on the treadle of the loom, and he. <sighs> there's like a bit towards the end of the film where it sort of seems like Pip has like weird premonitions of death, but, but like everyone's doing that at that point. Like, yeah. The Manxman is a relatively major character. In yes. This. Uh, the um. I, I think that the fact that a f that figures like the Manxman and Pip are included speaks to the idea that this is a fairly like detailed adaptation. Yeah, because you can easily imagine uh, a Moby Dick adaptation that just leaves those characters out. Entirely. Oh yeah, especially the Manxman. I was genuinely surprised to see him around, uh, leaning over to Mark, being like, "Is that the Manxman?" <laughs> and then yeah. shortly after, someone says. What, Manxman? You think that the courtship is cursed? Or something like that. <laughs> In almost that tone. Yeah. And I was just like, yes! Yeah. Oh, one minor character who's in this film, very notably, by the way, is Father Mapple. Oh, yes. Oh. The, um, the sermon is still included, and in fact, Father Mapple is played by Orson Welles. Yeah, um, it's... The sermon gets a whole thing. They like the visual of the prow of the boat with its bowsprit oh, as a crucifix. Yeah, the... Honestly, like, the sermon scene in this film is great. I would say significantly better than the sermon scene in the book. And some of that is just Orson Welles. Um, <laughs> but some of that is also, like... S less of a long speech? Uh, yeah, the speech is not as long. <laughs> the speech is better delivered. <laughs> At least better delivered than I imagined Father Matt yeah, yeah. delivering it. But I also think that, like, a lot of what's happening in the chapel adapts to a visual medium very well. So for example, yeah, I agree. the beginning of the chapel scene, there's like a a pan, I guess. Okay. Anyone listening who understands film terms better than I do, if I say something wrong about it, like if I call a camera motion a pan when it's not a pan, I'm I'm sorry. I don't just we do not have to apologize for this. We're well, talking it's about just, adaptations. If if I was talking about a film and I used the word synecdoche incorrectly, uh you would probably correct me, right? In a book? Oh my god. 
<gasps> if I was talking about anything and I used the word <laughs> snack incorrectly. Anyway, point is. We're... It's a part of New York, right? Sorry, that was a very dumb joke, and I apologize to our listeners. Uh, anyway, the the camera is is showing us um like the kind of the wall of the church seen past like the people sitting in the pews. Yeah, so and there's the... a they're, they're singing a hymn as we yes. do this. So we're listening to a hymn. We're seeing all the different people who are in the church, and we're also seeing behind them all of the like memorial tablets in the wall of the church that say like you know this is in memory of this sailor who was lost, lost at, at sea, sea and like yeah. this was erected by his widow and and we're seeing widows and yes and we're, we're seeing like people in the church who are probably like widows and orphans um, yeah and there's a lot of implied widows and orphans in this movie yes and, and it's just like it you know i'm not saying that the chapters in the book that talk about those uh tablets do not like give a strong sense of this like kind of place of mourning mm-hmm. but um but I think that the way that it's done in the film is is very effective. Um, yeah, yeah. No, the the whole um, chapel scene with Father Mapple is great. Uh, so, and I think also one other thing is that because of the broad like thematic and character changes that the film yes. makes or the changes in emphasis yeah the, yeah the chapel scene feels more weighty also the specific like specific things are drawn out of the sermon that are like specifically important to the themes of the movie. we'll get to this later because we had a bit of a discussion about about these themes and i do want to get to that but first um one of the major differences from the book um besides like the introduction of a couple scenes uh is that starbucks main character yeah, so like, like <laughs> a- Ahab is like the the star, but Starbuck is the protagonist. Yeah, Ahab's the antagonist, more or less. Like the novel, or the I'm gonna keep doing this and saying the novel when I mean the film, and the film when I mean the novel. It's a problem. Sure, I've done it like three times, and it's been yeah, twenty no, minutes. Yeah, no, it's it's impressive, honestly. <sighs> anyway, so there's just there's there's definitely a lot of emphasis on Starbuck. There's a lot of scenes of conflict between Starbuck and Ahab and, like, overt scenes of Starbuck considering mutiny. And, like, not just considering. I think the most important scene for this for this development, this uh, transformation of Starbuck from the upright but fundamentally incapable man that he is in the book, the one who cannot deal with the things going around because he is too conventional and mm-hmm. too uh, constrained— is instead he openly talks to Stubb and Flask about Ahab's going to get us all killed. We need to do a mutiny like halfway through the movie. Although, so you're totally right. There's an explicit scene where Starbuck talks to Stubb and Flask about how... There's a moral duty to have a mutiny if the captain is mad. So like, you're totally right. This thing that is talked about in the narration of the novel and kind of present as a like humming possibility throughout the entire novel that uh, that never like comes to fruition and that reaches this moment of like its greatest intensity and and clearest statement in the musket where he still can't quite say it the film just like straight up makes that the plot yeah starbuck openly says I think that this voyage is bad. If you look in the charter, pulls out law book. We are allowed to overthrow the captain if he's, you know, going against the purposes of the voyage and he called off a successful whaling hunt. Also, Ahab in this is less competent at preventing mutiny because he does call off successful hunts for whales and, like, very rich grounds because he wants to make time immediately. Something that he is 
never stupid enough to do in the book. Yeah, he literally has them cut loose a whale that they haven't finished processing. And everyone is like, what the fuck? Yeah, while they... So this is another of those, like, shufflings and recombinations that changes the book. Because the Samuel Enderby, with its Captain uh, um, Boomer, who has his missing arm from Mm -hmm, Arm and mm -hmm. Leg, Chapter 100, has been combined with the Grand Armada... Which is right. this moment of massive whale motion. Yeah, they encounter the Samuel Enderby near the Grand Armada. And there's none of the weird shit in the Grand Armada where they're looking down into the water. It's just a huge number of whales that they're excited to catch. And yeah, the and Samuel there's a bunch Ender- of, like, footage of just, like, man throws harpoon. Harpoon lands in whale. Man shouts. Man throws harpoon. There's harpoon a lot, lands in whale. A lot of just, like, harpooning action in this film, which is not bad. I appreciate yeah, yeah. it. But, but yeah. Yeah, and so, like, when Boomer comes over to the Peck he's like in incredibly good spirits and he's like yeah three whales for us three whales for you or it might have even been like six whales for us six it's for you it's just a lot of whales. yeah so they're both so he's just like everything's going great and i love my ivory arm it's so cool i almost wish i had another one <laughs> yeah like i'm totally okay with the bit where moby dick ate my arm and i'm uh, not going to ever touch him again i saw him i didn't chase him he's like really straightforward about it um honestly i think it was a bit of a missed opportunity because the emotional linkage between uh moby dick and ahab doesn't sorry between boomer and ahab wow we're just really bad about this day but the linkage between boomer and ahab isn't particularly developed because this question of like the wailing out in the water is so much more developed because boomer is presented as someone who's much more sensible than ahab in a lot of ways like there's none of the question of which of them is reacting correctly to the vicissitudes of the world yeah that's fair um yeah one thing that i did want to mention by the way about that like starbuck talks about mutiny scene um is that he does bring up the idea of mutiny by literally taking out the book and, and pointing s- to the bit where it is legal to mutiny sometimes. yes like citing the law in a very specific way yes and <laughs> Stubb goes, well, you know, I I don't know about that. Yeah, and basically. Flask's like, I think I'm going to make money, so I don't care. And then that's when Starbuck has to start, like, scheming alone because he doesn't think he has the crew behind him. But now you'll notice this isn't Starbuck knowing what is the right thing to do but being unable to do it because he is paralyzed by fear and more. Starbuck attempting it, being rebuffed, and now tactically retreating to a different set of approaches. Yeah. And Starbuck he- is not failing because he is failing to take action in this movie. Yeah, and there's no actual, like, musket scene where Starbuck, like, has the gun, has the chance to take the shot. Well, there sort of is. Well, okay. We'll get to that. That's, like, Starbuck gets a pistol off the wall right, so and seals it. What I meant to say is they don't have the thing that's happening in the musket where Starbuck literally has Ahab asleep, right? Um, Instead, he, like, yeah, takes a pistol and keeps it secretly on his person. And then uh, there's this... During a conversation on the deck, like, basically during the symphony, the bit where, you know, Ahab is looking out at the world in general, but talk and talking about his, his intention to slay Moby Dick and... Starbuck literally pulls a pistol out on the deck of the Pequod in full view of everyone and levels it at Ahab. But then Ahab has like a, you know, goes to the part of his speech where he talks about, you know, um, 
you know, what part of me drives me on? While he's, he's being his most blasphemous is when the gun is leveled, when he says, who's to doom when the judge is taken to the bar? Yes. Um, so, you know, the bit where he literally says, you know, if there are murderers, God is a murderer. Uh, why should we be judged by God and not judge God ourselves? That's when Starbuck pulls the gun, slowly aims it at him, and then Ahab goes, oh, but, you know... Um, you know, he has his, his sad moments and his pitiable moment, and then Starbuck lowers the gun, but, like, everyone saw him do it and no one says anything. Yeah, and I think it's worth mentioning, by the way, also, that this moment is after the Pequod has encountered the Rachel. Yes. Uh, and I think there's a... the the I mean, you know, this is obviously this is in the chapter where the Pequod meets the Rachel already. But because of the way the movie is framing everything more around Starbuck, the way that we look at the scene is very much Starbuck being like, Ahab, you have crossed a moral line. Like to not help the Rachel here is like monstrous, monstrous. Yeah. And, and it is about like the the way it is framed is very much as like. Starbuck already wanted to do this. He was trying to figure out how. And then this thing with the Rachel makes him decide, I've got to do it now. It doesn't matter how. Um, and and the and also, an interesting thing there is Ahab also frames his refusal of Gardner as, well, your son has been slain by Moby Dick, and therefore I'm going to go take revenge for you. And it's very explicitly framing it as choosing revenge over the possibility of, like, of restitution and, re and restoration. Yes. And um, another thing that is strange that it's not in this, um, and honestly, like, in this case, I'm like, I actually don't understand why they didn't put this in more, because it feels like yeah. it would have worked with the way they were talking about Starbuck and would have especially worked with the way they used the Rachel here. Yeah. There is no mention of either Starbucks or Ahab's family. Yeah, no, Starbuck is not a family man in this. He never mentions his uh, wife and son. He never appeals to Ahab's wife and son. It never mentions Starbuck's, like, dead brother. Oh, yeah, no. Starbuck is completely um, disconnected from any, like, uh, Nantucket society. In well, fact, it's not even Nantucket yeah, in the movie. That's it's another... all out of New Bedford, directly out of New Bedford. Yeah, that's a little funny, is that the, the novel... Oof, the... The film completely removes the thing where in the novel they, like, start New Bedford and then they actually sail out of Nantucket. It's just all New Bedford. Yeah, 100% New Bedford. And the, the result is slightly silly. Yeah, but... Um, but to yeah. me, specifically. Other viewers may not notice at all. But, but yeah, the, um... That element of, like, uh... The element of, like, in the symphony when uh, Ahab and Starbuck are, are sort of connected by their, their feeling for their families... Um, that's not there. Also, and like this is clearly just kind of a casting thing, but um, Ahab is like, I mean, Ahab says the thing about like, like 40, 40, 40 years. Um, yeah, but, but Robert Peck was like not, or Gregory, Gregory Peck? Peck was not that old when he made this film. No, no. I mean, um, this is, Huston wanted to cast his own father. Yes. Huston like had the idea of casting a much older man, but, but Gregory Peck is not really that. Um, and Starbucks actor Leo Gen is definitely significantly older, Who and like, I think looks kind of like Rowan Atkinson. But Mark disagreed. No, I can kind of see it, but okay. anyway, he like, and you can tell like Starbucks looks older than Ahab in this yeah. film, um, and he's dressed more like he's dressed somberly. His he doesn't have the I don't know. I imagine Starbucks wearing like a turtleneck sweater, but yeah, I I think the way that they dressed him makes sense because he is like yeah. this sort of dour. somber. Yeah, he's very dour. Yes. Um, but but yeah, no. But like, here he's he's dour and serious in a way that gives him gravitas. That is like he is put up against Ahab and is like opposite Ahab, but he's not 
constantly being overpowered or driven back by Ahab. He's actively working against him. He's presented as a straightforwardly uh, moral and heroic figure for almost all of the novel, uh, movie. Damn it. Now yeah, I'm doing it. And I think one thing that also affects this a lot, affects the portrayal of Starbuck and affects mm-hmm. the portrayal of Ahab, is that there's a lot less of Ahab's, like, there's a lot less of what I would call, I guess, like Ahab's philosophy. And yes, there's also 100%. a lot less of Ahab's semi-supernatural hold on the crew. Yes. So, it's... like, there is the quarterdeck scene, and some of the ritual elements are there. Like, he does the thing where he grabs the three joined lances of the And talks about the, the power running through him and so on. However, I will say, the quarterdeck speech, the little lower layer, is given to Starbuck alone in the cabin below decks over the chart to explain why he must hunt Moby Dick, whereas the quarterdeck speech is purely, I lost my leg to Moby Dick, and he's the, you know, greatest of whales. He's also, the the size of Moby Dick is really emphasized in the movie, like the idea that he's so much bigger than other whales. Um, like he's like an island. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, like, it's, it's, I mean, I think that moving the little lower layer speech to a private moment with Starbuck isn't terrible because in the novel it is said that it's like an aside only to Starbuck. However, like, it, it does. It disconnects the quarterdeck from his philosophy. Yes. And, and like, uh, and you know, he does still like have the harpooners drink out of their harpoon heads, but he doesn't do the thing where he like makes the mates yeah, the serve re- the harpooners. The reversal of order is also not really present. Yeah. And, and, um, a lot the... of the things that make the pageantry of his sort of declaring the meaning of the crew. And in fact, a lot of that gets refocused into the doubloon and the doubloon alone. Yeah, and oh, also the the like the party that the sailors have after the quarter deck, which is also when like Starbuck is kind of like leaning on the rail and being like, "Oh God, this is all fucked up. I don't know what to yeah, do." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's I'm surrounded it, by heathens. Yeah, that actually gets moved. Both the party and I think also the scene where Starbuck is like reflecting because i think we do get starbuck having that reflecting moment during the party don't we or we have a little bit of him being apart from them and i think that's when he then gets the mates aside and talks to them about the laws yeah but it's it's not quite as detailed but the, the point that i'm trying to make and here it's not is quite that as, it's not angst starbuck in this is not racked by emotion he is responding rationally to the things around him but the point i wanted to make is that that party is actually after they catch their first whale yes um like it doesn't really feel like a lot of the people on the Pequod are, like, fired with Ahab's weird mission. Yes. It feels like they just really want to hunt whales. And, and earn a big gold coin. Yes. And, and like, also there's no candles, really. I mean... Well, there is... There's a sequence in the candles where there is, like, St. Elmo's fire, but it's much more about Ahab insisting that they add sail during a storm, and then him using the pageantry of, you know, the glowing lance and the glowing uh, um, cross trees. But it's not him in defiance of God in the storm. It's not him. He never makes his Gnostic speech, obviously. Yeah, and he doesn't ever grab the lightning rod. He doesn't stand on Fadala because there's no, no Fadala, Fadala to stand yeah. on. Um, yeah. God, I'm just imagining Ahab just being like... Uh, where's my where's my fedala i <laughs> yeah. need a lift yeah it it just um yeah now i will say the saint helmo's fire looks great it's just a weird eerie glow on the so, screen <laughs> i would say that the saint elmo's fire looks particularly great i mean it's very clearly just drawn directly onto the cells kind of thing um like it's it's a very clear green like 
outline. Yeah. But here's the thing. It looks so great because the movie has a really muted color palette. At times yeah. you could almost think it was a black and white movie or sepia toned. And it, I will say, that is one thing I think really works in the film. Yes. The color palette being this sort of muted, like going from a richer color early on to a more and more muted and uh, intense like grays and browns leading up to the whiteness of the whale as like this very visible thing. And the, you know, the candles being this bright, like, Scooby-Doo green. Um, You can't say it's not. Um, I think it's a really nice uh, color palette, and I think it does a very good job um, of communicating this world and and experience. So, yeah, yeah, the candles work in that respect. I'm just salty because it's my favorite chapter and most of it's not there. Yeah. One totally fascinating thing, this is just like a piece of trivia that I found on the wikipedia page but is like links yeah. to a there's a lot of trivia about this movie out there some of which is dubious but this one links to like a like an actual sort of detailed uh, yeah, article yeah. apparently is they, it the mirish 2008 because uh, most of the um there's a bunch of uh, citations to the mirish 2008 uh article i thought we were making movies not history which i'm specifically or article or book from no it's not that but uh, what are what do you I want to say about, this? about that because it was published at a uh, university of wisconsin press of, in madison oh that's so cute. it's it's my uh my institution that is cute. i just noticed that and was like oh hey yeah, no, this is, a, this is an article called um, Pushing Low-Key Limits, a Cinematographic History of Noir and Neo-Noir mm-hmm. uh, by David David Vanden Bosch. I don't know if that's correct. That feels like it might be a typo on Wikipedia's part. But anyway, um, the point being that according to this article, uh, they uh, took both color and black and white prints and layered them over each other. Wow. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. That's for- super cool. For Moby Dick 1956, John Huston and cinematographer Oswald Morris had the laboratory manufacture an extra intermediate black and white negative that was combined with the color negative for the final print in order to add extra deep blacks. Um, and uh, that uh, supposedly, according to Wikipedia, this is not in that article, so who knows, but that this is to create an effect reminiscent of old whaling prints. So that thing that you mentioned about how it almost looks like sepia-toned or like faded, I think that's purposeful. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, no, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of really interesting production notes. And I do want to get to them after we do a few more of the things that are like oh, yeah, developed sure. in the adaptation. Go ahead, go Some ahead. of these production notes are wild, by the way. <laughs> I just found one that I'm just like, <gasps> but okay, so... So Starbuck is sort of the moral center of the film, and this, I think, also culminates in an added sequence towards the end where the uh, ship is becalmed, yes. where previously in in the book, there's a few moments where the Pequot is becalmed and is pulled by uh, the rowing boats, but this is not a major element of the story, and it's certainly not a thing that happens just off Bikini Atoll as the whale is, like, being waited for. And so they, there's this bright sun, and I think part of this is just that boat movies from the 50s and 60s and so on were required to have a sequence where you were becalmed and the glare of the sun is causing men to go mad. Like, Sure. I mean, it's such a classic thing that Muppets Treasure Island parodied it. Parodied it. I have noticed that you bring up Muppets Treasure Island when we Only talk about, about this Only about this specific film. sequence. Okay. It's been twice 
And it's once in recording, once before, and both times it was about the becoming bit. And it's because there's a specific visual language that both of them are really, really using. Yeah, sure. And it's like the, in this case, it's like the sun glares down, then you see the gold coin nailed to the mast glaring off and everyone's staring at it. And the makesman's like, that cursed coin, throw it over the side. And like, there's this idea that the... That Ahab's, like, vengeance and the greed that drives people on... Because, again, his fire isn't infecting the men. It's their desire for the reward, for the gold coin, is not just a sort of symbolic thing, but becomes, like, really aggressively a thing. In fact, a guy gets the gold coin. Ahab is not the one to cite Moby Dick. And so when we eventually have the gold coin, he does just literally hand it over to a person and then says, and I'll give... You know what? All of you, if we get Moby Dick, you'll all get my 10% share in this voyage. So the pecuniary interest drives the crew much more than some mystical or philosophical hold Ahab has on their souls. Which is also interesting, I think, because Starbuck's motivation in that, uh, you know, checking the books, talking about mutiny scene, Starbuck lays it out in a very explicitly, like, uh, I mean, it's, it's capitalist way. Yes, and he, it's the he, way that the... It, he, Yes. He basically says, like, it is our, like, God-ordained mission to make as much profit on whales as we can, and Ahab is deviating from that mission. Yes, and not just profit, it's like, we are providing light and, you know, fuel, and we are providing money to widows and orphans who own shares in this voyage. We're providing, like, a service to the world. We are part of an economy, and Ahab is defecting from the economy to seek vengeance. And, you know, this is drawing on a real thing that Ahab says, which is, you know, um, you know, when he's like, Starbuck says, what will your vengeance, you know, bring you in the, you know, market of Nantucket or whatever? And Ahab scoffs at him and says, well, fetch a great premium here and strikes his breast. And I do like how Peck did that. It's it's a very nice jerky motion. Um, I really liked that scene. Yeah, I feel like we should maybe, the only thing we've said about Gregory Peck in this so far is just that he's kind of young for the role, which is maybe (laughs) true, but, but I feel like that's unfair in that, like, he, He's amazing. It's great. He's Gregory a great Peck's Ahab. a great actor. There's, it's, I really enjoyed him as Ahab. I loved his, I loved the makeup where he's got, like, he's got the scar, and it looks like a tear track, and it makes a lot of his speeches really intense. And he's also got, like, a shock of white hair. Yes, at the, in his beard and on his head, uh, that goes at these points where the scar crosses it. It's, it's good. Yeah, I think he has a lot of, like, really intense, like, he's willing to chew the scenery a bit in a way that I find really nice, um... Yeah, no, I'm I'm certainly not going to find fault with Gregory Peck's Ahab. There's some other commentary that's, uh, like, people at the time, and Peck himself, had various opinions about his uh, his performance here, which is fascinating to me. Yeah, but, but, um... Anyways, I, yeah, I don't mean to undersell Peck as Ahab. He's a lot of fun. He's just, he's not given the whole Ahab. The Ahab he's given, he does well, but because he's lacking much of that philosophical or intellectual space for Ahab, that, that scheming, it's, he's playing a character who is less interesting than the book's Ahab, quite frankly. And it's yeah. not his fault. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of true, yeah. Um... Yeah. Oh, oh, right. Something I also want to mention about the becoming scene is that it's immediately after the first person, the first man sights Moby Dick and falls from the masthead. Yes. So it's like very clearly... Did he cite Moby Dick when he fell from the masthead? Uh... 
I think he just falls Oh, yeah, you're head. right. He just he's falls. He's just going up they to get, the masthead, falls, and then they're becalmed. Right. It's like they're getting into, they're getting close to Bikini Atoll. You no, know, so that they, cursed, that ancient and cursed island, which we all know was long considered this source of evil and power before uh, Castle Bravo. Yeah, do you want to talk about Ray Bradbury now, actually? Yeah, no, no, no. Let's oh, okay. That's definitely within the set of things that I want to touch on after we cover the, the changes and the way this operates as a movie. Because okay. Uh, so Starbuck has this very clear capitalist, like, idea of we are doing a, a valuable job within the economy, and Ahab is in je- jeopardizing all that for vengeance. There isn't actually much of an idea that Ahab is jeopardizing the entire lives of the crew, except that Elijah, the old sailor who makes a prophecy at, uh, or, like, warns Ishmael about Ahab, he makes an explicit prophecy in this movie that, uh, Ahab will go below and a day later rise again and all but one shall follow. So, like, just straightforwardly, uh, Ishmael is told everyone but one is going to die on this voyage by, uh, by Elijah, who is now, like, straightforwardly prophetic. Yeah. So, Again, this is a flattening, this is a simplifying to make this more cinematic, more structured into a straightforward movie. And as much as I don't think that's what I would have done with Elijah if I was going to keep Elijah in a film version, I can't fault them for it. Yeah, they basically give him the same, the, the prophetic role that Fadala has. Yes, and, and, and much, the, much earlier. Yeah, and and then uh, the, the, the person who ends up uh, being pulled down by Moby Dick and then being visible attached to Moby Dick's body when the whale services again is actually Ahab. Yes, and it's not a day later. I just want to point this out. It's like three minutes later. Sure. Like, there's this bit where he will rise a day later, and I was like, oh, wow, so is Ahab going to, like, go? I assumed he was going to be Fidala, that he was going to be, you know, tied to the whale and rise again a day, you know, the next day. And for some reason, they're still pursuing the whale. Or maybe Moby Dick will just show up as they're leaving and come to kill them. And I'm like, wow, that's a fascinating change. And no, it's that he, like, a minute later after he's, uh, he he isn't dragged overboard. No, 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 no. Ahab leaps overboard as the boat is capsized by Moby Dick to, with a harpoon, on Moby Dick's side, stab him repeatedly. And I, this is where this image comes from. And frankly, I think this is maybe the most enduring addition to the sort of visual and imaginative space of Moby Dick, because I definitely ran into this elsewhere and had this in my mind without realizing it was from this movie, or that it didn't happen in the book, that Ahab leaps onto Moby Dick, grabs the lines that are tangled around the whale, and repeatedly attempts to kill him directly with a harpoon, and then Moby Dick dives, and when we see again, Ahab is drowned. Yeah. Um, and also not just that, but, and this honestly, I really want a gif of, uh, as Moby Dick sort of arcs his back, Ahab's arm very visibly like flops over his body in a beckoning motion twice. Like not just he beckons once and then his arm is folded over, but his arm flops back to his side and then back over in another beckoning to make sure you got it. Speaking of something that, that you've got to get that, that is obvious, but that it's yeah. worth em- emphasizing. I hope you all appreciate that Ben was doing a big arm. Ah, yes, I was. I was doing time. the I was doing the Gregory Peck. You were uh, beckoning me to death in the ocean. Sure. <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, I'm beckoning you to podcasting on this couch that we're both on. God. Anyways, so you know, there's a bit where Gregory Peck as Ahab is tied to the whale, and I think it's I think it's great. I think it's it if you're gonna cool. add that, it's great. This does, however, create a really weird moment where 
Starbuck, on seeing that, is asked by Stubb, oh god, the captain's dead, what, what, what do we do now? Like, do we stop? And Starbuck says, no, it's just a whale, push on. So they continue to hunt Moby Dick after Ahab's death, and that is the point at which Moby Dick turns around, destroys the Pequod and everything, and I, frankly, I think it's constructed moralistically, where Starbuck has continued the same thing Ahab was doing, and therefore that's why everyone's going to be killed. It's not because they were all swept along with Ahab, and, you know, Ahab sees everyone go down before he does. It's because, it's that the crew of the Pequod is punished for continuing Ahab's folly. Yeah, and it's interesting. I feel like I was I was thinking earlier about saying something like, I think this not... Ugh. I think this film doesn't really have the uh, kind of moral question of is what Ahab is doing where he attributes like uh, divine or devilish malevolence to Moby Dick. Is that blasphemy? I was about to say that the movie doesn't really do that, but I what it would maybe be more accurate to say is that the movie has that in it. And I think even in certain ways, like with what you just described, the movie actually like uh, underlines Double, it doubles down on it, yeah it's just that it's not um it's not a question and it's not verbally emphasized nearly as much as things like uh starbucks character arc are yeah i mean i think that the answer is that it's folded into starbucks character it is about this is blasphemy you know uh ahab is you know against god but i don't think that the i don't think the whale is really invested with much it's a visual spectacle when you see the whale but i don't think that moby dick is really invested with this idea of it having this cosmic importance and in fact that's really not raised it's blasphemy to pursue a brute beast is what starbucks says and it and later his line when he goes after moby dick this last time is it's just an animal it's just a whale well i guess okay so the way i was thinking about it ben is that it felt to me in the like if we want to interpret the events of the end of this film as as you say moralistic i feel like the film is saying that both ahab's like kind of obsession with moby dick his his sense of revenge his investing the whale with all this meaning as mm -hmm. like a a symbol See, i don't think he... but Sorry, that is on. that's bad but then what Starbuck is doing, where he's just doing normal whaling or claiming that he's doing normal whaling, that's also bad? See, I, I just don't agree. I think that Starbuck's normal whaling was fine. Every time we get to see people doing normal whaling where they hunt normal whales is presented as good, jolly fun. And, like, that's we've true. got we lots of men throwing harpoon into whale. And, like, the worst that happens, the reason in this version that Ishmael says... Is this what whaling's always like? Is like a tiny little capsize where nobody gets hurt. They're it's, not in a storm compared to the events of the hyena. Yeah, it's no, nothing. it's so true. This movie really does make whaling seem like good, clean fun. Exactly. Um, it's it's a jolly day out, and the only time someone dies is when he falls off of the masthead. There's no there's no danger in the whaling itself, except for Moby Dick. So and. What, so, so you would say that what's, what Starbuck does wrong in the end is that he is insincere when he says it's just a whale? No. That he doesn't I, really believe what that? What he does wrong is that he follows Ahab. Like, remember, Ahab beckons them on. That's the whole thing. And thematically, what Starbuck does wrong is because he has been swayed by Ahab's emotional, like, the, his personal charisma, more so than anyone in the crew, uh, Starbuck ends up moved by Ahab. He doesn't shoot Ahab when he's clearly steeled himself to because of Ahab's personal, you know, intensity. And when he sees 
um, you know, Ahab dead, he's clearly distraught and says, no, it's, you know, it's just a whale, carry on. He has been seduced by Ahab's vengeance, but it is not a cosmological or blasphemous vengeance. It is purely an individual, like, obsession. Like, this man I know was killed by this whale. Exactly, and the whale is right there. We can finish him off, and I'm not... But, okay, to me then, Ben, that says that you are agreeing with me, which is to say that when Starbuck says, it's just a whale, we hunt it as we normally hunt whales, it's full of sperm. Well, he doesn't say it's full of sperm here. He just, when Stubb says, you know, do we turn back? When Starbuck says it's just a whale, it's like saying of, you know, you know, protagonist character in action movie, he's just a man! That's not saying you don't have an emotional connection to it. I think you're, I think you're assuming things about what Starbuck's supposed to be doing there and saying that our president Starbuck in the book but are not really present mm. in the movie. So Starbuck you... in the movie is not trying to argue that Moby Dick is a brute animal beyond this initial statement that's quoting from the book. Beyond there, he is arguing that this obsession is bad and that it's taking away from the ships, like, the safety of the men and the success of the voyage. So what you're saying is that actually in that final moment, you think that after Ahab's death, Starbuck kind of becomes seduced by Ahab's cause. Yes. But the, that that cause has basically no cosmic meaning, at yes, least by the, the time it gets to Starbuck. Exactly. Starbuck is pursuing it because he is, his, you know, captain has just died and he has this complicated feeling about his captain. And then he says, and, you know, in the moment, he says, no, we, we just keep on with the chase. He does not credit the idea that Moby Dick could do this terrible destruction, but also the film does not invest Moby Dick with, like... Like, and I think this is a tension in the film, where there's a bunch of weird, semi-supernatural events occurring, and let's talk a bit more about the becoming and Queequeg and things going on there. Yeah. But at the same time, that supernatural stuff is never organized into a a schema of how to understand Moby Dick or the questions of Moby Dick. It's much more about, like... Ahab's obsession, the greed, the gold, this way in which the whole crew eventually get beckoned on. I think the introduction of that idea of it's not Fadala as Ahab's pilot leading him to death. It's Ahab beckoning the crew on. I think that's a huge thematic crux of how the movie has changed the story. Yeah, yeah. You're, I think that's true. And again, um, I think it's the best like gothic moment in the movie. I think it's like wild and cool. And the light off of the, uh, the coin is also pretty decent. So where the movie has stuck to its guns and decided on this new version of the book that it's going to do, I think it gets some really nice imagery. I don't want to claim that all of this is, like, bad. I just want to say that I think it's different. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah, uh, I I definitely think that this is, like, a film that has supernatural elements, but yeah, as you say, is not interested in organizing them. And and the novel doesn't really, quote-unquote, organize its supernatural elements. We don't know what the relationship is between, like, the omens that the Manxman can read and the prophecy that Fidala has. That's not really what I meant by organize. I mean that, like... There are supernatural elements because they in the movie because they intensify specific scenes and specific themes directly, but there isn't an organization of the idea of the supernatural within the movie. Yes. Whereas in Moby Dick, the idea of the supernatural and whether we can credit it and whether it is real and how it operates, not necessarily because it's trying to systematize it, but because the idea of knowledge, science. These are things that are not really present. In fact, the fact that Ahab is scientific rather than sort of intuitive in his pursuit of Moby Dick, the fact that Ahab's, uh, the fact that Bikini Atoll, which means that Moby Dick's supernatural threat is also directly equated to a very scientific present-day threat, all of these 
and I think I blame Ray Bradbury for this, are causing a bleed between different registers that in the book are very clearly interacting. Instead, they're just coexisting. Yeah, like, I, I, I think that, um, you know, yeah, the, the novel is not interested in explaining to us what it means that someone can make an accurate prophecy. Yeah. Like, whether that means that Fadala has some kind of divine or... Uh, satanic power like the the, the like novel doesn't want to resolve that yeah. but the novel does want to present to you the idea that this guy has powers and make you question what that means yes, whereas yeah. the, the film novel is... doesn't want to resolve it but wants to question it whereas the film just wants to use it like almost visually and spectacularly yeah yeah and and i think that um you know I wouldn't be surprised if part of what's going on here is a certain reluctance to make a film that is straight up about whether it's a good idea to try to kill God, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, but see, the thing is, you could do that and focus on Starbuck. It just makes it a very different movie. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, and I'll get into what I think is going on with Starbuck and and what Ray Bradbury in a bit. I'm sorry to keep being like, I, I have these ideas, but I want to hold on yeah, to Yeah, I don't actually totally understand what I... It, it's as no, because I you... want to get through... The film itself before getting to these large thematic cores. I, I guess. Because I, we've still, we haven't gotten through the wild shit that happens with Queequeg during the becoming. Yes, I just, I think that we shouldn't, when we're doing something like this, hold ourselves to the idea of like, let's talk about the whole plot and then let's talk about the themes. Because it's not like we're talking about the plot in order. That's, that's fair. We but, are but, being uh, very disorganized. But I think that once we get into production stuff, once we get into my vendetta against Ray Bradbury, sure, once we sure. get into that, that's going to make it very hard to come back and talk about what the fuck were they doing with Queequeg and a knife? Yeah, okay, let's talk about Queequeg's, like, death premonition then. Yeah, so first of all, Queequeg finds his, uh, has, rather than feeling ill and thinking he's going to die, as in Queequeg in his coffin, instead, Queequeg rolls the bones yeah. and decides from them that he knows he's going to die soon, and so he's just gonna sit down and wait for it. The Frankly, it is more exoticizing of Queequeg than the book is, and yeah, wow. Yeah, there's some moments in this film where it's like, wow, you took this book that was already very racist, and you added an extra little spin of more racism that yeah. wasn't there. Degu is supposedly strong because he has eaten a lion's flesh. Yeah. That that wasn't in the book, right? Yeah. I don't no, that, that I do book. not remember that from the book at all. And I think I'd remember that. that. And yeah, there's just, yeah, there's a number of things like that, um... Or, or, like, also, uh, I mean, you know, some of this is maybe just the translation of Pip to a visual medium that makes all the racism in that character's depiction more obvious. Yeah, the mid story like, is not hard to see. Yeah, but, but I'll, yeah, anyway, racist but, movie, but, like, you can't be shocked by that, really. Yeah, yeah, but, like, this, so the specific thing that happens is during the the becoming and you know again the sun is glinting off the gold quito coin the makesman is like throw it overboard the um the crew are all lying around shirtless on deck because again that's how you do a becoming in a movie like this and queequeg rolls the bones and decides he's going to die and so he's just sitting there and like a guy from the crew and oh also obviously queequeg goes to the carpenter who's introduced much earlier as a more like prominent character in the movie um to you know, make his coffin. It's not, uh, you know, there's no, like, reuse of the coffin as a life boy either. It just gets made as part of Queequeg's, like, death premonition. And then Queequeg's just sitting there, refusing to eat, using terms from the Ramadan, which is chapter 17, not chapter whatever late chapter Queequeg is, uh, thinks he's going to die in. Um, 
so there's a lot of that cross book like you know reappropriation going on um and so ishmael is like no no you've got to eat come on you can't starve yourself like come on you said we'd do everything together we eat together what and about our oath exactly you know they're they're married um oh right also ishmael is shirtless but he's still wearing his ascot yeah for like the entire last half of the film uh ishmael is just i mean everyone is shirtless yes because except, they all get except shir- ahab and starbuck yeah the whole crew gets shirtless during the becalming mm-hmm. um and there's just a bunch of shirtless men lounging around on a hot deck which is great uh and then yeah ishmael in particular just stays shirtless but with an ascot and it's that's great. Like, that's how I imagine Fred from Scooby-Doo on a beach. <laughs> yeah. And, um... Wow, that's two Scooby-Doos in this. I think something about the, uh, the era and definitely the, the effect on the candles just made me think of Scooby-Doo and it's been in my head ever since. Um, and, and then, uh, yeah, the amazing... Do you mind if I describe the next thing that happens in Go this scene? Go ahead. So the amazing thing that happens is, as like, Ishmael's remonstrating with Queequeg and Queequeg is totally unresponsive. Uh, one of the other members of the crew decides he's going to fuck with Queequeg and comes up and starts trying to cut him. Not and trying, he succeeds. Yeah, no, you're right. He cuts Queequeg. Queequeg. Like a line across his pecs with like a knife and there's like this red line and a drop. And Queequeg doesn't react to that at all, but Ishmael does and tries to get the guy off of him. And of course, Ishmael's not prepared for a fucking knife fight. <laughs> so he ends up like on his back, staring up at the man on top of him who's menacing him with a knife. Complete silence. Nobody says a single thing in this yeah, entire no, sequence. No one says a word. It's just oh, oh, wordless, Pip, shirtless knife fighting. Pip has been prancing around Queequeg, <laughs> yes. with, singing a hymn and hitting his tambourine. So there's been this, in the middle of the night, on the deck of the Pequod, with the makesman like, watching from the background. So there's this bizarre tableau, and then the guy comes in with the knife, and everyone's crowding around, and now there's a silent knife fight. Yes, that Ishmael is clearly losing. Oh yeah, he's and, about to get pinned to the floor with that knife. And then, and then Queequeg comes back to life, and like, uh completely dominates the guy he just who is... picks him up by the throat and like leans over and i'm pretty sure he killed him like or yeah, well at least i think he gets out. the knife and threatens the guy with a knife doesn't he no or... he just holds the guy back over like a barrel with his like with one hand on his throat the knife, and like he's holding the guy's wrist where the, with his knife hand oh away, yes that's but where he's it is. just choking him with one hand and, and, and uh, ishmael's like you, you don't have to kill him no no <laughs> and i'm like I'm pretty sure you do, Queequeg. Dude stabbed you and was going to pin your boyfriend to the deck because your boyfriend was like, please stop stabbing him. So, you know, I think this might be a life or death struggle here. Yeah, I think this would be a great time for Queequeg to physically throw a man overboard. We never got to see that. No, because um, they cite the white whale, I think. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, the event happens and then, or something happens uh, I think it's the sighting of the white whale. Quee yeah, the, the white, yeah, Moby Dick briefly appears at that point, and that's what, I guess, prevents that Queequeg from killing that guy. Yeah, yeah, like, we see the, we see Queequeg, like, look up and let go, and the guy just collapses onto the deck unconscious. Or Any- dead. Anyway, we don't know. Yeah, that's like, it is a, as been said, it's very exoticized. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of focus on just, like, Queequeg's totally expressionless face staring forward. With the tattoos. yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, it was great to see, like, uh, it was great to see something that powerfully homoerotic in this movie. <laughs> yeah, um, no, it was, it was a lot, uh, in a lot of different ways, like, good and bad. Um, so that's, like, the, the becoming scene, and that's all 
added. That's all new. And that's like a fascinating thing to have added new to like develop this. And I genuinely don't know how to fit that into the themes of the movie beyond just like, holy shit. Queequeg's not white. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. The the whole casting the bones thing is definitely kind of like, um, we needed to make Queequeg more mystical. Yeah, yeah, and I definitely feel like the way that Queequeg relate like interacts with this idea of just like knowing you're going to die and choosing it and then choosing not to do it is very different between the two. Yeah, it, it has different vibes. I don't know that I could quite put my finger on it cuz it's not like it's not exoticized in the no, novel. No, but, but the thing in the in the novel is that it's presented as a it's presented in the general structure of the book which for all of the book is very racist, not going to argue it's not. It is specifically trying to say things that are connected to that racism. Like its racism is both difficult to remove from the book because it's connected to themes and is fundamentally about this sort of pagan Christian dynamic. We've talked about this many times. Yeah, yeah. And fundamentally, part of what's going on in the uh, Queequeg and his coffin thing is that he is rea- he is presenting a certain image of, like, pagan virtue. He is stoic. He is, um, like, has some kind of connection to his own body and the world and his vital force, so he can just choose not to die. And also, the idea that he might die is presented as an almost comic scene, and it's there's a lot going on there, but it's connected to these larger themes. Whereas I don't know how to connect the themes I see in the movie, especially its focus on Starbuck, the most, you know, aggressively non-pagan of the officers. Yeah. Except in the context of exoticization of just like look at the weird shit going on on the pequod as we pursue you know uh ahab's uh, goal society is breaking down because it has become dominated by this obsession i feel like maybe part of what's happening here is that there is a, a fascination with the concept of like of a virtue of like heroism of human mm-hmm. excellence in the novel yes and and it it, it has a lot to do with Ahab, obviously, his yes. imperial brain. But it also definitely, there's a lot going on with Queequeg. Yeah, Queequeg the, is, the prince of the cannibals. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, I think also there's a question of, like, what kind of hero is Starbuck or yeah, might yeah. Starbuck be? Or And on some level, can Starbuck's version of heroism, which is being a very... Starbuck is everything that Nantucket society says a man should be. Is that enough? Is that going to succeed in the face of... Um, all these quote-unquote pagan heroisms of Ahab and Queequeg and, you know, the crew in general? Or is his Christian heroism in some way uh, anemic, lacking? And and the question of, like, what is hero... Like, there is, yeah. there is, like, heroism in this movie, but it it's not, like, emphasized in a kind of... Uh, there's no, there's not like Starbuck is the hero. It. It's all about whether Starbuck can follow through and do the heroic but questionable thing, like you know, to to slay Ahab or prevent this thing, and whether you know whether it is the heroic thing to do to act. Queequeg is not his heroism is not really of interest to the movie. Ahab is not heroic in the movie. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's that's a major sort of scene introduction, and I think sort of what it does and the effect it has. Um, what other differences are there that are of note? Oh, um, we probably want to talk about the different characters at some point, because there's, the interpretations are all interesting. Just, like, each character, you mean? Yeah, like, like, for example, this is the least depressed Ishmael. Yeah, no, this Ishmael is just having a great time. The opening scenes are so (laughs) funny, because it's, it's the, it's the speech, 
it's the speech, or not really speech, but it's 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 the bit from the Looming. monologue. Yeah, the monologue from Looming's that opens the book, where he's just like, "Look, uh, when when I am you know feeling it, suicidal, when it's a drizzly November in my soul, then I go to sea." And he gives this little talk about how like, "Oh, everyone is drawn to the ocean," but, and like you, and if you wish to get to the ocean, just follow the water down to the and like these are all things that and like the mystery of water these are all things that show up in the book very directly they are the text of the but book but the what what it does what the film does is it has this little speech but first of all it uh removes the overt reference to suicide yes but also i think maybe more importantly the visuals are just like Ishmael taking a nice little walk through the woods along a stream. Yes, and the music is like this very cheerful, uh, like flute piping, it, and it, like there's bird song. It does not feel like Ishmael has become despairing of life on land and is seeking a living death. It feels like Ishmael is has wanderlust. Yes, wanderlust is absolutely the energy. Like the thing it when it quotes his section, like so in the book, it's whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth. Whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul. Whenever I find myself involuntarily pausing before coffin warehouses and bring up the rear of every funeral I meet. Oh, yeah, and especially that's whenever my hypos gets such an upper hand of me that it requires a strong moral principle to prevent me from deliberately stepping into the street and methodically knocking people's hats off. So then, uh, I account it high time to get to sea as soon as I can. That gets summarized into something more like, you know, whenever I find myself growing grim about the mouth, whenever it is a damp, drizzly November in my soul, uh, whenever I find myself, um, whenever I or find it hard to stop myself from knocking people's hats off in the street, then I find it time to go to see. It makes him sound, like, fighty, like he has an excess of, like, a kind of energy that needs to be gotten out, that he's, like, feeling like his surroundings are restricting him. Yeah, yeah. Rather than, you know, literally just... Fuck. Yeah, that that thing about like funerals is also not yeah, there. So there's yeah. the the th- all of the thematic con- warehouses, funerals, all the stuff that thematically connects the ocean with death is not there in that opening scene. And also like um yeah, just like the Again, I kind of like this because I feel like it it's it's not a terrible interpretation of Ishmael, but it is a different one. Yes. This Ishmael is simply going to sea because the idea came into his mind and then he ended up in this sailor bar and just had a great time and like all of these cool guys danced around with him yeah. and sang a fun song and he was like, you know what? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I think in a two things that really struck us early on that I think really communicates this effect. Um at the Spouter Inn, it has a really obvious sign that says Spouter Inn, Peter <laughs> Coffin Proprietor. Yes. Um, and then inside, uh, the painting that is like a, a dark, muddied yeast, according to Ishmael in the book, that is like, he spends some time trying to figure out, and there's this like, this, you know, there are loomings in the book in the first few chapters, and that's just not the case here. There's a jolly bar full of sailors, there's a very obvious like painting of a whale leaping over a ship that is very easily interpreted um there's like uh you know he's just strolling down the water the mystery of the water is presented as a benign thing rather than as is eventually revealed a presentiment of death yeah like these themes are just not around in ishmael and so he's a much simpler even like 
mildly comic character, and he's barely present for most of the story. Yeah, and I I think that's going to be something that will probably be true for a lot of, like, a lot of film adaptations. Mm. I think Ishmael is very difficult to work into a medium where you can't have him constantly being the narrator, you know? I mean... See, this is just where I'm going to defend the idea of a Moby Dick with lots of voiceover. Oh, yeah. You could do a Moby Dick where there's just Ishmael's voice constantly talking. (laughs) Um, I'm not saying that's impossible, but... Most of the time, people don't make films like that. I think that. you, when I, when I also complained about the lack of, uh, of whaling detail, I believe you uh, described what I was asking for as a YouTube video essay. Yes. So, so yes, Ishmael's video essays, uh, I'd be all for it. But, <laughs> yeah, um, that's fair. Yeah, I do like the sequence where we do see some like blubber being processed, and we see the Bible leaves being cut out of the blubber strips in an interesting way that was like, oh, that's not how I imagine it, but it's entirely possible that's how it is. So... There's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Relatively ungory, but still not, like, lacking of the body disassembly. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> yeah, another slightly weird thing about the the casting, just as long as we're, like, talking oh, yeah. about the, the, the characters and stuff. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the actor who played Ishmael yeah. um, is... Okay, he's not actually... Never mind. I was about to say something about the age. He... he... I think he's, like, about the same age as Gregory Peck, and mm-hmm. he's not, like, he's not actually too old to play Ishmael, but I guess No, there's... no, I thought he was fine for Ishmael. Yeah, the, for me, I felt like... He was very standard leading man looking. That's fair. Um, yeah, I, I think it's that, uh... Also, I think what's it's... his name? Is this Richard Basehart? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that what I was really feeling was that I wanted... Ishmael to look a lot younger than Ahab yeah, in the same yeah. way that I wanted Starbuck to look a lot younger than Ahab. Yeah, no, it's... And, and so I think if Ahab had been old, then I wouldn't have noticed Yeah, no, Ishmael. I, think, I think Ishmael would have been fine in, term, in that comparison if uh, Ahab had been older. But yeah, Gregory Peck is significantly younger than Ahab would have been. Uh, it, it's definitely a thing. Gregory Peck does have a lot of, like gravitas in the role and like you know yeah yeah sternness but it's it is the case that he doesn't have the weathered look of an ahab for me yeah um okay so that's covering sort of ishmael so you know decent ishmael very cheerful ishmael not super involved uh queequeg you you know we've talked a little bit about this i i don't know if queequeg was i need, I need to check who the actor was oh he's polish Polish, okay. Of, of course. Yeah, no, I, think... I, I could tell that it was not, that this was a white actor cast as Queequeg, but I was curious whether this was, like, a known actor or anything like that. Um, I mean, according to Wikipedia, uh, this role is one of the ones that he's best known for. Um, yeah, but, like, oh he's... my god, look at his name! Yes. Friedrich Anton Maria Hubertus Bonifacius Graf von Lederberg uh, Wichhelm, who, yes, he was, uh an officer in the Austrian Cavalry Division of the <laughs> Austro-Hungarian Imperial Army. Fuck. Amazing. I'm I'm sorry, when you have a name that compares to uh, Theophrastus, Bombastus, etc., you know, the Parachel- Parachelsis, uh, you are incredibly Polish. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that uh, if you were going to cast a white man as Queequeg, which you were obviously going to do in, in this film... In 1956 in this film, yes. Uh... Ugh. <laughs> Casting him as a an officer of the Austro-Hungarian Empire is... At least capturing some of the book's energy. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. But but yeah, it, it's it's very uh, you know, um racist. Yeah. And yeah, and like, like the way that they, you know, of course like there's a lot of I think visual emphasis on Queequeg's tattoos and Queequeg's body and how weird Queequeg looks. But again, yes. that's in the book. Oh so. yeah, no, 100%, 100%. Um, um Yeah, it, it's difficult for me to imagine a uh visual adaptation of I mean, many, basically all of the characters of color in the novel. Yeah, yeah. Certainly Queequeg. Um, all certainly of them Pip. are playing into certain stereotypes and archetypes that mean that you're either going to have to have a really, like, you're going to have to sit down with an actor who is, you know... Of an appropriate background. Exactly. And specifically someone who, like, it's like, look, we are kind of casting you in this role that's very about the stereotypical visual qualities of this often in a way that's trying to present this as noble, but we're going to have to talk about how to do this represent this presentation justice. Like, I would never look to Moby Dick for quote-unquote representation of yeah. anything, except possibly bipolar twinks. But <laughs> Yeah, I... Jesus. I can't believe you're the one who said that. <laughs> yeah, I just wanted to see what it was like one time being the one to do that. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I did steal your thunder. It's true. It's fine. I have plenty more. Uh, I will have many more <laughs> occasions of calling Ishmael gay. Anyway, um, but the, uh, uh. yeah, like I, the thing that I think makes it very hard for me to specifically imagine like a performance of Queequeg is that obviously Queequeg's tattoos are based on real things. Yes. But and often incredibly culturally important and like do not fuck this up kind of thing. Yeah, that's the thing. Like the the Queequeg's tattoos as presented in the novel exist to be mysterious and culturally non-specific beyond a general sense of like pagan Pacific Islander. Yeah, Islander. like you would you would need to do you would have so to much consulting to You would make have to a make modern... a clear decision about like okay, I'm going to pick we're going to make Queequeg's tattoos this specific real world tattoo. Or you have to get like you could in theory, and this is I think maybe like the the tryhard version is you get a number of consultants who are specifically involved in not just those cultures but like are themselves either people with those tattoos or who are ideally involved in like the cultural transmission of those tattoos. Yeah. And get them to consult on okay, here we have multiple examples of things that are similar but not the same, that have these connections. We want to create a fictional version that captures some of what we're doing here. And this is a thing that people have historically been, you know, willing to consult on and interested in because you're taking it seriously. And it often produces, this happens a lot with, like, fantasy, you know, construction if you're doing it right. And it produces really interesting stuff. This would be the kind of thing where you do, like, an immense amount of effort and research and then it barely shows up in the film except... <laughs> Except in as much as if you dig into it, there is actually something interesting there, and possibly you'd want to, if you're doing like a modern movie version of Moby Dick, which, what a wild concept, you're really going to have to either put in some discussion of it in the film that tries to communicate some of what Melville didn't, or you're going to have to accept that a lot of, a say, an American audience, especially a white audience, is going to see those and not and just be like ah oh, yes it's surfer tattoos in that way that you know american consumption of other cultures produces a really bad reading as well as a really bad writing uh would love to see a production of moby dick that invents an entire conlang for uh 
for Queequeg's tattoos. Yeah, or... Because, I mean, you know, that ha- in the novel, we're told that, like, a sage created a language and used yes, that to it describe is a unique, him. a unique mystery. Yes, no, um... I'm reminded, as a very slight aside, that apparently for James Cameron's Avatar, the uh, they had a musical ethnology, uh, music, uh, ethnomusicologist consultant who constructed painstakingly an entire set of like tonal and uh, instrumental musical styles for the Navi in the movie, uh, which was supposed to be the basis for, like, we're going to have the soundtrack have sounds that do not sound like what a movie-going audience is used to, that draw on but are not the same as a bunch of different cultures around the world. And, like, tons of work was put into this. And in the end, the producers and director basically were like, this is kind of hard to get into. This movie, music isn't stirring the way it's supposed to be. And so that got flattened a ton in the final version and i suspect that's a lot of the same problem you'd run into trying to go really deep into okay we're going to do what melville could have done if he were less 19th century i suppose yeah no i yes like (laughs) this entire thing that we've been talking about about like how would you make uh, like, the answer is don't. Yeah. How, how would you make a non-racist film depiction of Queequeg? Like, on some well, I'm not level... saying non-racist. I'm saying trying to get the racism down to a manageable level. <laughs> God. <sighs> Look, I'm what I'm saying is that I think that there is a space here for reimagining and capturing the elements that continue to, you know, be really compelling about Queequeg in a way that's less racist. Yeah, no, and I, I maybe think it's that's a fool's true. errand, and I certainly would not be the one to try to do this. Yeah, no. <sighs> but, I mean, like, God, here's the thing. Despite everything we have to say about how racist it is to cast him this way and, like, present him visually this way, like, I love seeing this Queequeg and this Ishmael it, interact on screen. In terms of filmic presence, he's absolutely uh, a, a high point of the movie. I really uh, enjoyed a lot of his scenes. You know, my enjoyment is cut a bit by the racism, but, like, you know, not as much as my enjoyment of scenes with Tashtego and Dagu in it, where it's, like... Where it's, there's just nothing there but that. <laughs> yeah, I, the bit where in the quarter deck, in order to emphasize that maybe the crew's getting a bit rowdy, and that hunt, hunt, may God hunt us if we do not hunt Moby Dick to his death, they have Dagu, like, take an, uh, a harpoon and, like, menace at the camera with it, and it's just like, <laughs> that... That was more racist than the book. Yeah, that, that by like a wide margin. It's it's yes. Like, for all that the book uses the harpeneers in racist ways, it's never like, it's never unironically presenting the threat of Dagu towards the audience as a black guy with a spear. Like Jesus, fuck. Yeah, I mean, I think that part of this is also that, like, these are more familiar racist tropes to us, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true. Like, that, that is the racism of, like, the 20th century. And specifically of film depictions. Yes. Like, that's a visual filmic racism, and therefore we're immediately like, oh, yeah, I'm, I know that one. Yeah. You're playing the hits. Anyways, yes. moving on from here. Uh, in terms of other characters, I, I don't have an enormous amount to say about this stub and flask, although I think they're, they're a pretty good stub and flask. Yeah, I think the flask was uh, quite decent. I think the stub is not the book stub in some yeah. odd ways. Like, he's just, he's humorous, but he's like, he's a jolly and friendly guy who helps uh, Ishmael out early on and is like, you know, you'll have to get a new Bedfordman's permission before you can go sail because oh. we own all of new all of the whales. 
but you'll do. Aha, I'm yeah. a friend. Yeah, speaking of homoeroticism, <laughs> the, the moment when Ishmael gets into the, uh, the spouter the in, bar. the spouter in, and there's just like all these whalers around, and he's a little intimidated, and one of them, one of them, specifically, I think it's Stubb who talks in this It is time. Stubb. Stubb, Stubb is, is like, like, oh, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I, I would like to go whaling, maybe. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, Stubb ribs him a little bit and is like, oh, you've got to get our permission. But then immediately, like, is like, oh, I'm just joshing you, and like, lets him into this circle of like, uh, this this brotherhood. Dancing, yes. Yeah. And also uh, cuts off his like, wait, who is that walking past really ominously outside? Captain Ahab? Who's that? And Stubb gets the line, Ahab's Ahab. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, the, just, the, the, the thing here where Ishmael goes to a bar and he's not sure if he's gonna fit in with these men <laughs> and one of them is a little mean to him at first, but then immediately everyone just welcomes him and it's a party and he's so happy to be there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, no, this stub is definitely, like, he's a lot less mean. Yeah, um, yeah. Th- we also just don't get any of the scenes that show up sort of sprinkled throughout the novel of, like, stub and flask interacting. Where, yeah, like, like, they're not a comic duo in this. Yeah, which is fine. I, yeah. I, I mean, I think that... We didn't need a gravedigger. Yeah, like, I, I think the, the thing of, like, stub and flask talking and, like, stub expressing his, like... Uh, sort of his his meanness and his doubts about Fidala and like whatever and Flask kind of laughing nihilism yeah and Flask kind of being the the um not even even rising to the ability of understanding what Stubb is talking about it's like a good dynamic but I don't think it's like totally essential to the narrative yeah yeah, I think that's true The, the mates just don't the mates and the harpooners do not serve the same structural purpose in this movie as they do in the book so I'm not surprised that they don't have a ton to do with the Harpeneers besides Queequeg or a ton to do with the mates besides uh, Starbuck, Stubb gets a little more. Yeah. Uh-huh. You like his hat, though. Yeah. He doesn't look anything like I imagined Stubb, but I think this is a perfectly good Stubb, visually. Yeah. Yeah. As, as said, I, I have some opinions on the Starbuck appearance, but... Um, okay, so... So that's Stubb, Queequeg, Ishmael. Well, now we're getting to... Oh, Father Mapple, fantastic. Orson Welles, fantastic. Really elevates Father Mapple. Yeah, no, I he really he really does. You can see why in the uh, BBC miniseries with Patrick Stewart as Ahab, and I really want to see Patrick Stewart's Ahab. Uh, I'm se- self consciously a dumb nerd about actors, um, but uh, Peck goes on to play Father Mapple in that one. So there's like an established thing where like big name actors want to play Father Mapple, and I'm pretty sure it's because of Orson Welles. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah. Uh. <laughs> this is peak, uh, this is peak, uh, Moby Dick acting. <laughs> yeah, I, um, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about Pip. Because, yeah, yeah. Th- like, this Pip is, as we said, this, this is just like a very, you know, straightforwardly minstrel-y Pip. And, Pip just and- runs around on the deck, hitting his tambourine, and then, um, has, like, a weird moment where he's, again, like, dancing around Queequeg during his death reverie. Yeah, I feel like there are attempts to invest Pip with some degree of, like, weirdness or, or a prophecy. There's there's that mm-hmm. element. There's also, like, isn't Pip, like, trying to hold Ahab back at the end in the way that he does in the novel? Doesn't I, something like that happen? No, the thing that happens with Pip late in the novel is that when the boat gets smashed, we see Pip get killed. No, Pip gets put on deck as the captain by Ahab oh, instead that's of right. Starbuck. That's right. Ahab does that thing of, like, you stay on the ship and you survive for me. 
Yeah. Um, there's a, I, there's that moment. I feel like there was at least one other moment that implied some kind of connection between Ahab and Pip. Yeah, but, but it's, like, I think it's it was really never... been reworked just into like, this is the child on board. Ahab is yes. kind of nice to him. It shows a slightly softer side of Ahab. Yeah, there is, there is nothing with the sort of strange, like, adoption that happens yeah or or there's nothing about the way that the two of them are mad in like opposite directions and like pip has had pip and uh ahab both had contact with the divine in the ocean and had very different reactions to it in the book and in this there's none of that and if pip has any like weird prophetic powers it's entirely gestural and you know, just weird and racist. Yeah, and 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 yeah. I, I don't like how Pip was handled in this movie. No, I think it's I think that if you're going to have a character that's that close to a bunch of racial caricature and like you know fundamentally doing kind of minstrelly things, uh, you got to have more reason to do something with him. And you know maybe there is a, a limit to that, such as for example a thirty minute spoken word piece that we may <laughs> never get to hear. But <sighs> but yeah, no this. I, I don't understand why they kept Pip in this And film. then he gets, like, smashed under falling stuff when the boat gets smashed and, like, vis- dies on screen. And it's like, why? Yeah, did Do- you, were you just trying to tug our heartstrings? Was that all? Yeah, is, is Pip just here to, like, have a child say some mildly weird things and then die? That might be yes. the case, yes. Anyway, so so Pip's a, a low point in the in the movie. But so I think the two characters we haven't discussed that we need to Oh, one more character, Peter Coffin, uh, who's only interesting as, you know, the innkeeper of uh, the Spatterin, only interesting because he's actually dubbed over with Huston's voice. Yes, that's true. That's that's, that's kind of cool. At the time I thought we were having a slight sync issue in the audio. Oh. <laughs> and then I was like, wait, no, everyone else is fine. I, I must have imagined it. It turns out no, it's that they dubbed him. Yeah. Um but uh uh, so yeah, that that's just a fun note. But so, Ahab and Starbuck. Who do you want to tackle first? Uh, we've, we've talked about yeah, Starbuck we've talked about bit. both of them. Kind. I, I I'm not totally sure um, what there is to discuss. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, that's fair. Like I'm I'm not saying I have, I'm not saying there's nothing left. I'm just saying like what is it that you want to discuss? I mean, I wanna I wanna talk about our final like we've talked diff- a bit about different qualities of Pex. Ahab, his his youth, but is also his gravitas, his uh, you know, the way the script has given him a different character to play than strictly is in the book. And yeah. I wanna I wanna get an overall impression of Ahab, because while I enjoy a lot of his scenes, I feel like this Ahab is at his best in moments of like quiet glowering and then also when he's yelling at someone. Yeah, I think that this is, like, a very compelling Ahab to watch. Um, it's obvious to me that the kind of pop cultural idea of Ahab, oh, yes. like, descends from this yes, performance this, in a this lot of ways. Ahab is the Ahab who is defined by an obsession with revenge, and it's just revenge. Like, it is very specifically, I'm going to get vengeance on Moby Dick for my leg, but he doesn't have any of the concern about frailty we never see him be unable to do something because of his leg in a lot of ways the motivation behind that revenge has been carefully elided to create an image of just absolute dedication to revenge for a basically irrational reason yeah i think one of the things that's a little interesting about this ahab and his relationship to his leg is that like um you say that we never see him unable to do anything because of his leg and that's that's true like we never get any of the like he has difficulty getting up or down the ship. Mm-hmm. We never get any of that. But at the same time, he does actually visibly limp for mm, mo- basically the entire movie. Um, and 
also, like, uh, we're never told that his, like, white scar is, like, just congenital or that or lightning it, or lightning yeah there's a moment where he mentions lightning striking him but it's not talked about yeah um, yeah and, and it could easily be treated as metaphorical like you know i was there was this moment of terror i think he literally says that body and soul bled into each other yeah it, it's it's that like it feels like we do have a sense of this ahab as like a blasted man yes uh, uh, and and someone who has been like struck down yeah and and but like... i think that the way it's framed his vengeance is much more the blasting like his his monomania is the blasting as much as more than his physical destruction whereas i think it's important in the book that the physical destruction of his body and his ability to do things is a huge part of that blasting and is driving that spiritual decay does he I can't remember. Does he ever actually have to have the leg replaced in this book? No, no. no. In the movie? Or in the movie. Yeah, no. In the book, yes. Multiple times. In the movie, no. It never comes up. The carpenter doesn't even make him a leg. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the carpenter is really only in this movie to make Queequeg's coffin? Yeah, and then not make it into a life boy. Yeah. I think he's... The carpenter just seems to be there because they got a compelling image for the, like, character. And, you know, there's later going to be the, uh, the you know, coffin things, they need Ishmael to survive on the coffin. Yeah, you've made it sound, you keep saying that the coffin isn't made into a life boy, which is true. There's never the point where they're like, okay, now make this into a life boy, but it yeah, is the it thing. Is, it is the thing that Ishmael floats on, but it's never explained because we don't, the previous life boy is thrown into the water, but doesn't sink. And the coffin is never prepared as a life boy. So it's completely inexplicable in the movie why the coffin surfaced instead of the life boy. Yeah, I mean, Quickwig does tell the carpenter to, like, caulk it. So oh, yeah, sure, float, sure, sure. But... I'm not saying that, I'm not saying it's a, I'm not cinema sinsing this. <laughs> I'm just saying that the logic of the way the movie moves through things, there is a life boy and it gets thrown into the water and floats. And then later the coffin is made. And those sort of vaguely come together in and then the coffin floats up. But if you think about it for a bit... The life boy is never shown to sink or vanish, and the coffin's ability to float is only gestured at, so it's really just taking things from the book and how they and things that occur, and not really stringing them together except by the simple expediency of movie continues forward. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of true. Um, yeah, um, <sighs> I, I, it also just occurred to me to mention that um, we do get Ahab uh, having... Because I was thinking, what's the carpenter here for? And yeah. then it also made me wonder, what's the blacksmith here for? And what he, what the blacksmith does in this film is that he forges Ahab's, like, harpoon. And he does baptize it in blood. But we don't get to see that. Yeah. And he doesn't, he never says the, like, I baptize you in the name of the devil incantation. Um, and also the things that he has it uh, forged out of are... Just a bunch of other harpoons. Yeah, it's like not... Like, you just, like, combine the spirits of these harpoons into a single harpoon. And for me, I'm just sort of like, so is the harpoon bigger? <laughs> like, what What do you do with the extra metal here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyways, it's, you know, it's, it's a perfectly effective scene. And again, it's a film. You can move forward through these things. You don't need to explain them in detail, and it'll work fine. But it is... A lot, again, a lot of the theological elements of Ahab's character, a lot of the Gnostic elements, are simply not present. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that means that Starbuck, who is shook to his core by those elements in, his, you know, in the book, is much more practical and direct in what he's dealing with, and much more just simply presenting the reasonable point of view. And again, he becomes the protagonist. His arc is the one that matters to the motion of the story. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, and, you know, his ultimate failure to turn uh, Ahab back and ultimately accepting, like, Ahab's mission and continuing it is, you know, is his tragedy here rather than his inability to turn Ahab um, because he's un- unwilling to act. So yep. it's a different kind of uh, Starbuck. It does make for a very compelling filmic character. I just think that it's a huge change. And here's where I want to discuss that thematic thing. Mm-hmm. So I said facetiously that, oh, well, it's a movie from the 50s. They're all either about McCarthyism or okay with McCarthyism. Oh, yeah. We had this and... whole discussion about this because Ben said that and I thought he was being like really flippant and making an incredibly broad statement that like people would immediately have an so... issue with. However... Go on. So, first of all, Gregory Peck had had run-ins with HUAC and been opposed to it in the past. So, actually, I looked this up, so had John Huston. Oh, yeah, Huston yeah. Huston actually see, had, like, a pretty significant... Did he get blacklisted for a while or something? No, no. but he, um, let me find this. He was, like, one of the founders of a society that, like, advocated for, like, the first group of people who got blacklisted. Mm. I should mention that I had a, uh, I think it's a, a like cousin um relatively close to my to my family tree who got uh, blacklisted for being a communist in hollywood in the uh in the period of huac yeah so so i don't want to um give the impression that like so so he he formed he was like one of the founding members of something called the committee for the first amendment mm-hmm. um which was like a a group that involved a huge yeah, yeah. number of incredibly famous people mm-hmm. um and Based, Wikipedia makes it sound like part of what was going on here is that these were, you know, New Deal Democrats who were, like, opposed to McCarthyism. Yeah. But who also were, like... Not communists. Well, and who were, like, of course they're not communists. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, Right? Yeah. Rather than being, like, yes, it's... Th- there may it's be some communists. some of them are communists. They should be allowed to be communists. It was more like, oh, they can't possibly really be communists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the and, 50s. Yeah, um, and uh, the... There's something that Huston said about, like, what he thought uh, sort of Hollywood communists were like, which was basically, like, they're uh, people who came from poor backgrounds who are now rich and they feel guilty about it. Wow. Um, wow. But the the important thing here, not his, like, weird bad takes on communism, it, it's the 50s. Sure, but sure. But his, the, the movie is so much about, there is a guy who is obsessed with an enemy and has presented this enemy as everyone's and through a combination of greed and intense charisma is reorganizing a commercial enterprise sure but a like a meaningfully part of society commercial enterprise a good capitalist one around this mad vengeance that has nothing to do with its purpose and starbuck is the one who points out this is wrong that this is against the laws and usages of the sea and people are like well yeah but i'd rather go along and get along i'm going to work with him until eventually this you know continuing obsession and this drive against an external enemy forces out all human compassion and eventually results in everyone being dead and by specifically the reframing of starbuck as the moral heart the normal american who says no i won't stand for this obsession i think that there's some very clear at the very least broad thematic influences coming in from the McCarthyist era of Hollywood. Yeah. Like it's in not, it's not as blatant as something like the crucible. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting take because like, like, I think what you're saying has, has merit and like, uh, makes sense. And I think also like the sort of fundamental point here that like you, this, this question of like, what is like Americanism? 
is obviously like present in this film as yeah. it's present in the novel um and just like what quote-unquote america means is like, yeah yeah what it, who is the what is the american character is it present very much in the novel but here i think the american character is very clearly invested in starbuck the conscientious dissenter who is willing and able to act but is not followed by it is because of the madness of crowds because the crew will not join him that his correct direction is gone and then when he himself gets swept up in it he leads all of them to death yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that is a totally reasonable read. Uh, I think it makes sense. Yeah, I'm not saying that I think this was literally con- con- conceived of as an anti-Huac film. I don't think, I don't mean that it was literally like, ah, oh, yes, the white whale is communism <laughs> and Ahab is McCarthy. But I yeah. think that there are elements of the zeitgeist and especially of Hollywood, especially of these, this director and actor that are entering into the way they think about madness and obsession and charismatic individuals drawing people into folly yeah and i think it's also worth noting by the way that this is uh so in 1952 huston moved to ireland because he was disgusted by huac yeah and Um, this was filmed in ireland or off the coast of ireland this is not the first film that he made after that but like it's definitely like uh, it, it seems to be like, the most famous film that he made immediately after that. And it, yeah, it's, like, all of it was, like, not all of it, much of it was filmed in Ireland, and it's clearly, it seems really clear that making this movie was a big part of, like, Huston kind of um, establishing himself in Ireland, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, uh, on Wikipedia, the um, the Spouter Inn that got you, the, the pub that got used for the Spouter Inn mm-hmm. uh, is now been renamed Moby Dick's. Um, and there's a statue of Captain Ahab in the town where a lot of the filming happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely want to talk a little bit, by the way, about like, um, the production. And, oh, like, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. I, I just wanted to cover that sort of thematic reason yeah, no, why I'm... I think that the recentering of Starbuck and the recentering of the story around, it is a story about obsession with an enemy and obsession with revenge and with like losing yourself in that. I think is very much speaking to the uh, the time and the uh, you know the artists behind it because this was really a passion project for Huston. Yeah. Um, so um, one, speaking of which, yeah. So so a production thing that I wanted to point out that I was amazed by is that they did some actual whaling. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, I like they, so they. I don't know for sure if they killed some actual whales. I never whales. saw what looked like an actual whale in the movie. Yeah, but at least... Like, th- again, this is one of those places where I'm like, how much do I trust Wikipedia? But they, they claim that parts of the movie were shot at the sea in front of Canasol, a traditional whaling parish in Madeira Islands, Portugal, with real action of whaling done by whalers of Madeira Island. Huh, fascinating. So, and, and, okay, so Madeira Island does have a, a tradition of whaling... Um, but it's, okay, so there's a whale museum. Yeah. Uh, in the fishing village of Canisal. Sure. Um, apparently Madeira, like, only did whaling during the 20th century. Huh. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I have no idea. I, 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 it's, it's just like, it's incredibly interesting to me that they- are tall ships for whaling then. Well, no, but they did do- no, they did not. Uh, I, I, I would assume. 
I don't know. Like, if they don't do tall ship whaling, then it can't have been any of the scenes on the whale boats. Yeah, um, So it has I guess... to have been, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I, I don't know what the, I don't know Might anything. have been scenes from the, uh, whale processing. Oh god, did we see a whale processed? Like no a way. real whale? No. I hope not. That has to have been some kind of weird foam, yeah. Um. <laughs> the, uh, the blubber looked real weird. But, yeah, like. Yeah, but, um. But I don't know what blubber looks like. <sighs> Anyways, so, I don't think we should spend too much time on this. We will not be able to figure out what sections were, quote-unquote, real whaling action. Yeah, I, I. Like, I, that's I, just not an option. I just wanted to point out that there exists a real place where people at some point historically did real whaling that was involved in the production of this movie. Sure, sure. Um, and, and like, I'm finding, yeah, it is hard to find detailed information from a museum in, a yes, small museum in a foreign country. not try to do that on our oh, podcast. Okay, but, but I wanted to mention a specific tidbit that I found. Okay, okay. And, and this is just, this is from somebody's blog from visiting the museum, but apparently... Whaling started there in 1941. Yes. So, like, I just think that's interesting. Yeah, no, That, it, like, they were is... probably still doing commercial whaling at the time that this, uh, yes, this movie was Yes, presumably, made. yeah. That's all I wanted that to That makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, uh, filmed off Ireland. My favorite detail from the production in a mechanical sense is the question of the whales. Oh, yes. Uh, first of all, um, a myth that was put to rest in cinematographer Oswald Morris's autobiography Huston, we have a problem. First of all, that's a cute title. Great yeah. title. Uh, no full-length whale models were ever built for the production. Previous accounts have claimed that as many as three 60-foot rubber white whales were lost at sea during filming, making them, quote-unquote, navigational hazards. So that didn't happen, but God, I wish it did. Yeah, it's um, clear that there have been a lot of, like, uh, uh, sort of legends about, like, the whales from this production. Yes. Unfortunately, the whales were primarily, like, not unfortunately, but, like, the false whales were just, like, their backs. There's only the sections we see in the movie. There's various different articulate sections. But I think the most amazing part of it is that However, the Moby Dick artificial whale did come loose from its tow line and drifted away in a fog. In 1995, Pet confirmed that he was aboard the prop, which means that section where he was, like, on the whale stabbing or lashed, at one point, he just floated off. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Now, I will say that if there had been a myth about the... And him saying that he was aboard the Prop 95, it's entirely possible that that was... Yeah. Yeah, but but nonetheless... Uh... I choose to believe. Yes. Yeah, so um, after the Prop... According to Morris, after the Prop was lost, the Pequod was followed by a barge with various whale parts. Yeah, it, it, it seems like a lot of the... It's easy to imagine when you're watching the movie that they just, like, had a giant whale, but clearly... They had a bunch of sections of giant whales. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whales and longboat models were, uh, sorry, 90% of the shots of the white whale are various sized miniatures filmed in a water tank in near London. So there's a lot of, like, you know, scale models and stuff. And, you know, I like practical effects. I think that's real cool. Yeah. I like how Moby Dick looks in this movie when his crooked jaw is up out of the water. I think that must be a particular model that I really liked. And then, you know, when they're stabbed, when, when it's man throws harpoon, harpoon goes into whale, I found those whale backs much less compelling. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, okay, also, guess what the name of the, if you haven't seen already, guess what the name of the boat that was used for the Pequod is. Oh, uh, you mean the tall ship? Yeah, the tall ship. I the don't actual, know. What, the what? Moby Dick. 
<laughs> yeah, they got a um a ship ty- uh, named the Moby Dick for, that was from 1887, built as the Rylands, uh, came into the hands of the film industry in the 50s, was also used in Treasure Island. It was destro- destroyed by fire in Morecambe, England in 1972. And I gotta say, the phrase destroyed by fire makes it sound like they were like, okay, we need to lay this to rest. <laughs> like, you know, we took on the Moby Dick. God, imagine, consider, if there were a similarly long... Uh, hunt by a prop man who lost his leg in a production and then wanted to burn the Moby Dick to the waterline and finally succeeded. I'm just saying, I would watch that comedy. Yeah, fair enough. Anyways, it's just really funny that uh, the Moby Dick was the name of the uh, ship that they used for the Pequod. There's just a lot of cool stuff like that in the background here. Uh, Another similar thing is that... um, Jaws apparently wanted to uh, introduce Quint, the vaguely Ahab equivalent in Jaws. Sorry, did I say Jaws wanted to? Steven Spielberg in Jaws wanted to. uh, And wanted to start with Quint watching this version of Moby Dick and, like, joking about the inaccuracies in the movie. Mm. And apparently he was unable to get permission because, quote, Gregory Peck was uncomfortable with his performance. Peck yeah. apparently had a lot of misgivings about his Ahab. Yeah, it, it, it seems like there was a lot of kind of feeling, I, I, I don't know, I, I get the sense that that was also something that came up in reviews a lot, it's like, oh, Peck wasn't a good Ahab. Yeah, um, critics were kind of, you know, critical of Peck, and I think a lot of it was to do with age and like how, and the effect that that has on the movie, which we've marked, but also, um, apparently, um, Huston didn't want to cast Peck, and yeah, Peck didn't know this until that. after the movie. yeah. Yeah, like I, there's just a lot of like stuff where it's like uh, this feels this feels a little bit awkward in the background. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, but yeah, no. There's a bunch of uh, different reviews, some of which are like you know it's missing a lot of the like uh, mystic um, effect. Uh, it's missing a lot of you know these various elements, but you know reviews weren't particularly bad. They yeah, were quite yeah. solid. Um, Apparently, the the consensus is that it, you know, may favor spectacle in place of the deeper themes in Melville's novel, but Huston's Moby Dick still makes for a grand movie adventure, and I, I think that's pretty fair. Yeah, that is basically what you and I have said. Yeah, it's it's a fun movie. It's not living up to the novel in a number of ways, but that's fine. I do think that there's there's a lot that's of interest here, but it's not quite the same things. Um, apparently, Huston did really like Peck's uh, performance, though. So yeah. Huston was happy with it, at least. And frankly... Given everything he went through in getting this together, I think that's what matters. Yeah, that's fair. Um, okay, as we're talking about John Huston and the production, is now finally the time yes! that we talk about Ray Bradbury. Ray fucking Bradbury. the uh, Who wrote a novel about making this movie. Yes, first of all, he hadn't read Moby Dick before ma- before writing, like, helping write the script for this. And apparently, and as far as I can tell, he didn't write read Moby Dick in the production of this movie. Uh, he clearly brought in the, like, uh, Bikini Atoll thing that, that has Bradbury's stench all over it. Do you uh, want to explain what Ray Bradbury <laughs> is and what Ray Bradbury's stench and is what Ray Bradbury you? did to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and okay, so, why, why you feel compelled to hunt him to the ends of the earth? I don't. <laughs> My White Wool is talking about Gene Wolfe, who is the better Midwestern science fiction author of that period, who's also incredibly white. Um, so, 
Ray Bradbury is a very well-regarded uh, science fiction and often fantasy author of the like golden age of science fiction, who's, I think, mostly notable for the fact that he also wrote more standard literary writing and uh, like like realist stuff that has a, a tinge of the fantastical, of whimsy. Uh, his Martian Chronicles is very well-regarded. But the thing about him is that he's like the Midwestern science fiction writer. He had a lot of crossover into being well-regarded outside of the specific spheres of science fiction. And fundamentally, I think that his writing is not just like, oh, I think he's a conservative politically. I mean, I think he was... He has a lot of crank ideas uh, that are often conservative-ish, but it's much more about being cranky about young people than anything else. The thing about Ray Bradbury is that he's stylistically conservative. He's His style is often fun and interesting, but it's also incredibly dedicated to an image of the world that is incredibly Midwestern. I think the, the big thing that frustrates me about it is his Martian Chronicles, which is about Mars as, like, almost a metaphor for uh, the settlement of the Midwest, like, you know, and the settlement of the United States, goes to lengths to do two things. One is to say that, oh, well, you know, the Martians were, either the Martians are presented as this terrifying alien threat, and since they are more or less analogous to, like, the native people of this place you're settling, that's weird. And then secondly, the Martians are presented as, oh, they're all dead, but it's really not our fault. And we can, like, resurrect their spirit and even maybe become the Martians. And there's this image of, like, yes, our society has its problems, but if we can just capture that Martian spirit, there's a very strong sense in which Ray Bradbury is saying that white Midwesterners can sort of absorb some kind of spirit or lesson from the people, many of whom, you know, were subject to genocide or relocation and various other crimes by the settlement of the United States, uh, by white settlers, they, their spirits can sort of be absorbed into and inform the now great character of the Midwestern person. And the combination of his, uh, of that, those kinds of themes just wake me out. But secondly, also, he's so unsubtle and straightforward and in some ways resistant to subtlety or complex opinions in a lot of his work. Like, I think the most famous example of this is Fahrenheit 451, his famous novel about, um, a future society in which books are outlawed and are in fact burned by firemen with like napalm sprayers. And the imagery of this is great. And the idea of like, oh, this is a story about censorship, about like society. The thing is, what he was writing about was his belief that TV was dumbing people down, that people were only going to watch TV and therefore books were going, you know, which are the true good medium were going to be, you know, rejected. And for a guy who worked on film, that's very rich. But on some level, Bradbury is just not as subtle or as interesting or as nuanced as he often gets credit for being, because what he's very good at is lyrical writing and lyrical descriptions and that quality of his language, uh, which is not particularly stylistically interesting, but is very pretty, successfully projects a lot of his very straightforward or not super exciting to me science, uh, science fictional ideas into, uh, into a certain register that people are more interested in. And I realize that I'm, like, taking a real big swing at a, like, incredibly well-revered and well-regarded science fiction author. And, like... Yeah, but fuck I, him. Yeah, yeah. You fuck like, Ray Bradbury. I don't like him. Yeah, uh, well, like... <laughs> you, I feel like you... I'll because... still read and enjoy some of his works, but he's an author who, overall, I dislike as an author. Yeah. I, I feel like you undersold 
just how fucked up the uh martian chronicles deal is yeah because like i i wanted to be you said that it wigged you out which is true but like that's kind of but a light way yeah, of describing no, that's, that's it's fair it is genocidal also just, perspective it is, like the thing is it's very rarely saying it is good that these people were wiped no, out what, it's, but it what is it is, saying, is it's it is, super sessionist yes, is the term it is I use. usually that, used like, in terms of like the martians are literally completely gone and it was something that the human settlers bear absolutely no responsibility yes. oh wow for. like in the in the martian chronicles the actual way that everyone on mars is killed is chicken pox turns out to be 100 percent totally super lethal like it's like smallpox but with no blankets no it's purely a mistake and there's no like and it's taking you know the spread of deadly diseases in um in north america after the columbian contact uh and turning it into a hypertrophied version of that that manages to completely clean out this space for settlement to the point that in a lot of his stories people can literally move into martian villas and spaces and then the one story that i have the most problems with is very beautifully written it's a good story in terms of its construction it's dark they were and golden eyed and the basic which cons- like that fucking title already man the racism in that yeah yeah so the basic concept of it is it's a series of vignettes of people visiting the new Martian colony, and it is very much like a, a colony in the Midwest, like a, a settlement, there's, you know, villages and so on, and people there are getting more and more interested in, and as you go by, as these different people, as you have these different vignettes from it, people are more and more interested in, like, the old Martian culture that was there, and they've, like, moved up into the villas, and finally someone arrives and is like, huh. You know, the native Martians seem perfectly nice and are very, like, interested in art and, like, very athletic and, you know, this sort of idealized image of, a, like, somewhere between an idealized noble savage and an idealized, uh, like, Roman uh, villa. And, like, this is, like, the perfect way to live. And where are all the, the white settlers we left here? They've all turned into Martians. Yeah. And it's very, very straightforwardly stating the, like, fundamental idea that also shows up in his uh, the final story of the collected um uh the martian chronicles which is also called the silver locust so there's this idea of like oh there's something bad about you know there's something questionable about settlement but the way it's always solved is we now must become like the martians we must absorb their knowledge we must learn their lessons that's a real weird fucking way of thinking about a people that has been pushed out or genocided by set- by settler colonialism and replaced. And it's like, it acts like it's respectful while being fundamentally kind of like hungry. Yeah. So what do we want to say about Ray so, Bradbury and this film and Bikini Atoll? Well, one thing he definitely did is not help with the racism <laughs> yeah so we can uh, just we can't, yeah, yeah it's not all him. let's not bla- we have no idea how racist john huston is or sure was. sure we have no idea who put in those things but with bikini atoll you know i mentioned that the movie feels like it really loses a lot of the philosophical or deeper themes this isn't just me this is a general critical consensus um and so i think that Bradbury's little thing with Bikini Atoll, and I think a lot of the ways things have been rearranged really have his sort of, his cuteness. There's a way in which the sort of, uh, the the neatness of certain things fit together that feels like 
Bradbury clearly was like, you know, involved in rearranging these things and setting them up together. And, you know, maybe it'll turn out that Bradbury barely did anything, but he's one of the two main scriptwriters. I don't believe that. Uh, I, I would be really surprised. And again, the, at the Bikini Atoll thing, the reworking of a lot of the, um, the imagery feels very Bradbury to me in that it's kind of fantastical, but unwilling to commit to the larger implications of this strangeness. And it's purely on some level, like a lot of Bradbury's stuff, is purely about small-minded people who can't understand, you know, glory and wonder. Like, it's... I don't mean that it's literally about that, but that there's a certain degree of, like, when there's these moments of wondrousness, it's about, like, this intrusion into the normal. And that is often in his stories about, like, oh, people can't handle this, and ultimately it's going to get them in some fashion. He loves distorting the normal and having these like intrusions and here that becomes like the driving force for things like the you know the becoming and the coin being like weirdly cursed and so on and so there's this sense of like or you know everything to do with Queequeg and his like weird death reverie the sense of the uncanny is strong and that's a thing Bradbury likes yeah yeah anyways uh, but, obviously, but if any reader has strong positions on Bradbury, feel so free to at me. I was expecting you to explain what I think is a central point that I think maybe is so obvious to you that you forgot oh, to mention yeah, yeah. it, which is that Bradbury is obsessed with the atom bomb. Oh, yeah, no, he, yes, 100%. Bradbury is an atomic age science fiction writer. Uh, nuclear war figures heavily in his stuff. I mean, that's understandable for a Cold War writer. Sure. And he is definitely the one who thought that associating Moby Dick with Bikini Atoll is only visible in, like, American media when it's associated with the with the hydrogen bomb. Yes. And the idea that Moby Dick has some connection to this through time is, I would say, sort of typically Bradburyan gestural. Like, it's, it's effective for a second. And if I'm sure if you're not, you know, like me, someone who has a vendetta against Ray Bradbury... It's effective a little bit longer than that. Just you have this sort of sense of foreboding of connection of like, huh, this has some connection to the future of atomic war and the Cold War and obsession and all that. But it never really capitalizes on that or develops it. It's purely a cute correspondence. Do you... Is there anything you can see that relates between that particular choice of like where Moby Dick is and this uh, like... Um, McCarthyist thing you were seeing. I don't know how. I mean, I, other I, than I just reminding I'm... people that it is the Cold War right now. Yeah. Like, they're both, like, that's what I mean when I say it's gestural, or it's not organized. It doesn't work to fit those things together, but instead just sort of puts them both into the same space. And again, I think this is something that Bradbury is not unfond of doing. He likes uh, interesting like juxtapositions and he likes um often kind of cute juxtapositions by cute i mean that they're like very clever and they you know they make you go ah i see or they make you for a moment have that they, ha they make you have that moment of recognition but i don't think they necessarily are well developed and i think that in this case um that's pretty uh obvious just because there's nothing to do with the hydrogen bomb in this movie yeah. Like, I, I don't know how you can construct a reading in which Bikini Atoll serves as anything but a cue to the readers to be like, oh, it's a bad place, and it has, like, weird aura of, like, future destruction. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's basically true. Anyways, this just... has been me ranting about Ray Bradbury for much longer than was necessary. I'm no, sorry. No, I... Listen, I like it when you complain about Ray Bradbury. <laughs> <laughs> and again, I want to be clear that he is not an unskilled writer by any means, and he has a lot of things that are going on in Bradbury such that I'm not never going to be totally dismissive of him. But I do think that his worse impulses, and as an author I don't really like, I think his worse impulses are considerable, are really on display in what seem to be his touches in this script, and it's certainly the case that the script does not have the lyricism that is his saving grace. Yeah. Saving grace is a strong phrase. That is his, like, upside. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah. <laughs> Young podcaster waves fist at cranky old man waving fist at clouds. Y- yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay, so that's that's Bradbury. Uh, we talked a bit about Huston. We talked about um, you know various uh, various production things. We've talked about characters. We talked about changes. Um, is there anything else we really want to get to before we uh, close the lid on Moby Dick, nineteen fifty six? Which every time I say that, my brain just says Death from Above, nineteen like eighty whatever it is that that album. Oh, sure. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I found it a very memorable album title. I don't even remember most of the music from it. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, oh, we mentioned the, uh, before the shark, there was the whale thing. Or was that on, was that on? No, that wasn't. Uh... Okay. So, uh, one thing that's funny is that in 1976, this got a theatrical re-release, uh, because it was influential on Jaws and Jaws had done gangbusters in 75. So, uh, they re-released it and the poster reads, before the shark, there was the whale and i'm like you can't do this to your audience (laughs) what a mean way of selling this movie like oh we're gonna get a jaws but with moby with with a giant whale that's cool huh why is this like this yeah this is not a jaws no i mean i can see the influence of moby dick either you know this film on jaws but uh i mean most, I, I think I've seen Jaws, like, a long time ago. I don't have a strong memory of Jaws. Maybe it's a lot less like or a lot more like it than I remember, but I don't think so. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm now looking at uh, just, like, random trivia, which I have no cool, idea cool. if it's true or not. I'm looking to see if there's <laughs> anything that is cool enough that I want to talk about it, even if it's probably false. <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, no, nothing really stands out. No, I think um, we've I think we've mostly uh, exhausted everything I wanted to talk about in this movie. Um, yeah, okay, I'm I'm good to go. Oh, there's plenty of good boat footage. I just want to say that there's That's some nice true. footage of the Moby Dick, aka in this movie the Pequod. There's some uh, there's some cool scenes of people in the rigging in a storm and so on. And just you know, I consider that a positive for any movie it's in. Tall ships are good. Tall ships are good. Uh, okay, this is a piece of trivia that is, that is objectively true and that I like. Apparently, nobody ever calls him Ishmael the entire movie. Oh, he says, call me Ishmael, but nobody ever refers... Well, that's perfect, because it's a pseudonym, right? Yeah, that's yeah, just what, no. He's just telling the novel readers to call him Ishmael. He wasn't called Ishmael in the Pequod, so that's great. They just call him you all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is how one should refer to Ascot Boy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I... God, the thing where he's just walking around shirtless in the Ascot is really funny to me. 
Like, what? what is the point of this ascot other than to communicate Ishmael's ascot nature? It's to tell you that he's gay. Yes, <laughs> that's what it does. Fair visually. <laughs> I don't know if that's real. I mean, you know, it was it was 1956. Ascots were more normal. But, but still, it just... <laughs> Oh, okay, okay. I think... Oh, I will say, I quite enjoyed uh, their Bildag and Peleg. Yeah, they Yeah, that, they that, were that's fine. just a, a minor moment in the movie, but I thought it was a good a good setting of that scene. Mm, does illuminate the kind of weird set of scenes they decided to adopt, adapt. Yeah, they needed like, to make sure to have that 777th lay bit. Oh, right, because that's connected to the fiduciary question. Like, the how much are you paid? What are you involved in? That's true, but it was a weird thing to include, I think, because it's... I mean, they definitely didn't explain what a lay is. Exactly. Like, I don't know how, how clear that scene is if you and don't then, understand what exactly he's negotiating. Yes. Over. And then later when Ahab says, uh, my 10th share, my 10th share, he says like his 10% share. He doesn't, cause that's new dialogue introduced into the movie. Yeah. It doesn't, he doesn't say my 10th lay, which is how he would describe it. Yeah. Yeah. And Although yeah. I think he probably has a share in the sense of like owning a share of the boat, but like, it's also very funny to me that in the uh, scene with Bildag and Peleg, when uh, Ishmael and Queequeg are, are signing onto the boat. Um, oh, right. Yes, this is a great thing to end on. Yeah, it, Ishmael is just, as Bildad and Peleg are doing their little thing where they're arguing about uh, what they're going to give Ishmael, Ishmael keeps being like, uh, 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 but, uh, well, that wasn't what I was thinking of, actually. <laughs> I was thinking of the bit where uh, Ishmael makes his mark, and they zoom in, and I'm like, No, oh, Queequeg makes Queequeg his mark. Queequeg makes his mark. Yes, I'm sorry, I misspoke. Queequeg's making his mark, and they zoom in on the paper, and he draws a little whale. He does. It's great. It's, ah, uh, it's not a subtle movie. No. But that was a truly charming moment. Okay, I think we have more or less covered 1956, Moby Dick, starring Gregory Peck and directed by, uh, something Huston, a... John Huston. John Huston. Yeah. And also partially written by Ray Bradbury. And what tune is it you pull to, man? I can't wait to restore boats! 